Welcome to episode 508 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. We've got a team welcome along to episode 508 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? Good. It's still recording, Bevan. It's still going. John's doing the technical stuff today. Joe's away in Wellington, so she's got my laptop and I uh, couldn't be bothered bringing my desktop out to the lounge. So, uh, the recording studios, you mean? The recording studios. Sorry, the recording studios. And uh, so John's on on the garage band jobs. It's still still recording. And I have to say, it, it feels a little bit odd. Like I didn't know how to start the show then. And you may have noticed it. I was a bit fumbly at the start of the show there because normally I push record and away I go. Mm. John's oh. taking over. John, I'm yes. proudly brought to you by Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. He's even trying to peek around the corner to I check know, on Because I've got my <laughs> iPad mini, which I don't really use that often. It's just a bit odd. Extreme right. endurance. Uh, your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And our patrons include Paul Yates, the creator. Levi, Sticky Black, Colossar. We've got Mike, the far, Farborer. Farnborough. Uh, Farnborough Fox. Matthew, Prince of Pain, Holtwick. And Daryl. Darren Jones, double O. Nice. This week's show, guys, we've got a bit of an action-packed show for you. We've got some news. We've got discussion of the week. We had a good discussion last week. Uh, we've got a couple of interviews, Jombo. Yes, so we didn't manage to get to Craig Percival last week. Uh, we are this week. He did the eight Ironmans in eight days in Australia, in eight different states, and it looked like it was a pretty epic challenge, and I'm picking it was a touch harder than he thought it was going to be. I can't wait to talk about it actually because he was pretty successful all round, wasn't he? Like he achieved the goal of the fundraising. And, yes, yes. You know, and so look, but look. he was in a world of hurt. Really, was he? <laughs> yeah. oh, we'll talk about that later on. And we've also got Paul Newsom from SwimSmooth.com. Um, and yeah, I've had Paul on the show in the past because did he swim around New York? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah around Manhattan Island, he won that race. Uh, and we're really just discussing swim tools and swim matrixes and things like that because everybody these days seems to have the watches that can record all your data and stuff mm. from the pool but it's a bit like back in the old days when you first got heart rate monitors you didn't really know what to do with it you go oh, that's interesting and then so power meters came along and people got those and they go well that's interesting numbers but what do i do with it yeah so we're sort of just talking through the, the data you can get and, and then what you can try to do with it are you using your watch in the pool yes you are you yep. like it oh it's absolutely fantastic but i i use it for the the simple function of it counts your lengths. Oh, really? And so you can get in there and you go, right, I'm doing six 400s today. And does right? it beep for you or does it, does it let you know? Or you just... can set it up to beep and stuff, but I just keep an eye on it. And um, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, like it, because I haven't swam in years. So I'm going to be swimming in a few weeks from now. But Yes, um, and biking. Biking and running. Yeah. <sighs> I did the voice work at the race last weekend. And yes. uh, it was a pretty epic day for those guys because the wind was... I actually saw the Philinator and yeah. uh, the Holy Hammer there. Yes. And uh, Yanni, Yanni. Uh, Yancy. Yancy, that's it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was it was a pretty full-on day, but they had killer winds. So Phil's, Phil's been to Hawaii. So the race is going to be the course we use for our outbound leg for the IM Talk weekend. And it's 100k race. and It's, it's, it's a very it's, challenging yeah. ride. you got a, a good hill climb to start where you go up to about 350, 400 metres. Yep. Come down, and then you got a long flat, and then you got loads and loads of climbing. And Phil said, when you're along the top of that climbing, he said it's the windiest conditions he's ever been in, and he's been to Hawaii several times. Well, Hayden Morrison, the guy who won it, who's an Olympic medalist, he said it was because I interviewed him post race, and he said it was probably the most dangerous he'd ever felt in a race. 
you know, and this guy's done the tour, this guy's done it all. And he yeah. just said, like, he, the first thing he said was, God, like, someone's, <laughs> someone's going to get really hurt today because yeah. it was just the wind. And one guy did actually get blown off his bike. And luckily, he was, you know, he's pretty injured, but nothing too serious. But um, yeah, it was definitely an honest race. Good. The boys bike back as well, so I was well impressed. Okay, guys, um, we've also got an app of the week. And yes. uh, we're going to into the show right now so this week's news well pretty interesting piece of news here Jumbo because the Ironman legacy spots for 2016 have been announced uh, and there's definitely a bias oh I don't know if there's a bias I just think it's numbers it's you a, think? A, yeah do you really think? yeah no I don't I just think there's so in terms of the numbers that came out of it so you guys know the legacy program there's uh, 100 slots that go to 50% of them went to the US yes yeah do you just think that's the way it is? well I think that in America, there's loads more races, and they go out there, and it's it's a bit easier for them just to crank up the numbers. So I, I don't think there's a bias in terms of selection, or it may be that Americans, um, more Americans, just put their name in the in the hat. I don't think there's, I don't think they go right. We're picking 50 Americans. I just think they just work their way through the list, and it happens to be that there's more Americans. So I crunched the numbers quickly, and there's a roundabout. I'm not impressed because I I went to the I read the piece. I thought, there's no numbers here. I thought, wait a second, John did his homework. Yeah. So there's around about 50 Americans. Uh, Australians are well represented. 21. 21. Yeah. Um, there's five, five uh, Canadians, six Germans. I spell check, bloody changed my abbreviations here. And then, and, then, and then a lot of other countries was one to three. Uh, I did see a couple of names here that are patrons of the show. I remember seeing Giancarlo, what's his surname? Oh, is he the one? Yeah, I do know the one you're talking about. Oh, I saw his name on the list. Anyway, and then there's lots of other countries with um, one or two sort of athletes in there. Giancarlo Nissenblatt. Nice. So good on all you guys. You know, they've got to go out there and do the required number of Ironmans. And then you've got to. And, and then they make it pretty it. hard for you because you've basically got to do two years of Ironman leading up to it and exactly. Ironman in the year of it. Mm. And, so, and 12 before that. So really you're doing 15 Ironman before you mm. before you get there. And nowadays you might not get the slots for two or three years. Yeah. And so, you know, like it's really interesting to see, you know, the people who get these have definitely earned it. Yeah. You know. So well done to all you people that are doing it. And we'll see you over there in Kona and hopefully bring your wetsuits for the Blue 70 Wetsuit Aquacon. Now, before I went away, I did ask the question on the show, does anybody know what's happened with the lottery slots or what's happened with that system? And we haven't had any feedback, so mm. no one seems to be clear on what's happening there. So if anyone does have any goss on that as time progresses, let us know. Okay, we had a few 70.3s happening over the weekend, Jombo, and uh, looks Tim, like some close racing. Tim Don took out the 70.3 in Monterey from Trevor Wertel and Matt I thought it was Shabo. I thought it was a draw at first because they finished on the same second mark. Oh, yeah. I thought, whoa, we had a draw, but then oh, it was a minute apart. Yeah, yeah. and then on the, the girls' side of things... We had uh, Heather Wirtle take it out from Camilla Peterson and Marinda Carfrey back there in third. She did have the fastest run split, unsurprisingly, but got uh, dominated on the bike with Heather Wirtle putting eight minutes into her on uh, the 90k bike course. Then we also had uh, 70.3 Puerto Rico, Tim O'Donnell. He wasn't racing in the same town as his wife. He was off elsewhere. What is going on here? Uh, Leon Griffin was second. <laughs> Cameron, right. Cameron Dye was third. Pretty solid field. And then we also had on the girls' side of things, Tina Dickin, Dickers take it out from Sarah Haskins and Lindsay Corbin. That's about all the racing we had. I had to pull some 70.3s out. Otherwise, we had pretty much no news. Some people love that. Some people want us to do a 70.3 show. Yeah. You sound pretty keen. If they had, I, I'd be really keen if they had. With, you know, they, they do have their their championship races, and maybe we should focus a bit more on their regional championship races because they do tend to have uh, pretty good fields. Jumbo, just 
before the show, I was on Facebook, and Keegan Williams was put a post up saying, what's going to happen with the second New Zealand slot at the Olympics? Mm. What, what's that about? Oh, because we, we have two slots. Ryan Sissons will get one, and then the second slot should go to Tony Dodds. I don't know how injured he is. Did but he, oh. it, it's, it, they may not select anybody. So in... That's what happens there. We, 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 forf- we forfeit our slot. Yeah, they may well do that. They've done it once before. Uh, what year was it? Maybe it was the first Olympics, I think 2000. I think we had an allocation of maybe, maybe um, this is just off the cuff. Uh, I think we had three slots and I think we only took two girls. So Why, why is it just I don't think it's worth the time? Well, no. So we qualify our slots through, the news, through ITU. Yep. And then the New Zealand Triathlon says, right, these are the people we'd like to take. That has to be ratified by the New Zealand Olympic Committee. And if they don't feel that that oh, person okay. is el- is capable of getting a, for example, top 16 finish, they'll say, well, we're not putting money into sending you to the Olympics if you're going to finish last. So okay. we'd rather put it into other people. So uh, I would say unless Tony Dodds is fit and rearing to go, He'll he'll get the nod, but if he's not, I've heard he's been injured on and off. Uh, then I'd be I'd be tempted to say they might not even send a second person. Wow! Or if they did, it would be like they did at the Commonwealth Games, where they they selected Tom Davison to be basically a domestic. So mm. what happened to Tom Davison? He went to cycling for a while, and now he's just working. Oh, so he's out of it. Mm. Oh. Okay. Um, <clears throat> did you know Jumbo? Oh, what was this Herald piece? Because I clicked on it. Didn't oh, take so me to did it. I. So there was a dude. Um, that did Ironman New Zealand. Yep. His seat fell off after not far into the ride, like within first 40 to 50 Ks, and he rode 130 Ks without a seat. Wow. And then, get on, then got off to run. He was from Belgium from memory, but he rode 130 what Ks without a seat. What are you doing in Because you can't just stay off, you can't stay standing the whole time. You got to, really. No, nah, you must sit on the. You must sit on the. You do a lot of freewheeling. And top rim. Mm. You must have to kind of position your butt. <laughs> It's not a nice ride. It did not sound like he had a pleasant, very pleasant run, um, just because you know you're using such different muscle groups all the way through. So because uh, if you stand yeah. the whole time, your quad's going to be killed. Oh, absolutely! But he came all the way from Belgium, and he said he, you know, he was doing it for his, his family and all the people that supported him, and he still had a reasonable time, but it wasn't sort of a kind of qualifying time. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Mm. You know, because if there's ever an excuse to give up, although surely he saw mechanics along the way. Mm. Yes, I, I can't remember. But if your seat post literally severs off, then uh, or if your seat post breaks, then there's not a lot they can do. Oh, that seat post, pet, man. Uh, back in the day, seat posts, when they were a lot more standardised, they would have been fine. You could have potentially said, can you go to the bike shop and get, yeah. me, a, get me one? But these days, you know, there's just so much variation. Wow, that, that's, that's impressive. That's incredible, John. Yes. I said that one in a while, have we? Uh, Jonbo, did you know that podcasting started? You obviously saw something on the... Well, I got an email from Twitter yesterday saying, thanks for being part of Twitter. We're just coming up to celebrate our 10th year anniversary, which is kind of funny when we're celebrating our 10th year anniversary. We started at the same well, time you know as Twitter. The interesting story of Twitter is Twitter actually started with the concept was it was going to be some kind of podcasting thing. Yeah. Mm. And um, Ev Williams, is it, the guy who started Twitter? He copied the name Twitter from Twit, which is a very, very popular tech, mm. um, podcast. And uh, yeah, it was quite controversial at the time, John. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, and then it went a different way. And 
you know look at us we're probably as big as twitter now exactly you know bigger <laughs> bigger than what's this next piece i couldn't couldn't open this one either uh there's just a, a short piece that i just actually saw just before coming around to your place it was on try 247 with the good old john levison and um unfortunately julian jenkinson passed away from a heart attack at the weekend and okay, he was for those of us who don't know much about he was a good um british athlete but he was around in the sort of 90s and he for a long time he had the fastest ever Iron Distance Race, 8.15.21, um, and I, the main reason I brought this up was I met him once and raced him when I was a junior when I was in Hong Kong, um, and he was a doctor, and he used to, he had quite a big presence in the UK scene, he used to write for their triathlon magazine, 2.20, and uh, yeah, he was one of those sort of pioneers for Iron Distance Racing in sort of the UK, so sad times and condolences to the families and friends of Julian Jenkinson. It's funny, isn't it, because we probably are... You know, when we think about the age of our sport, like it's interesting in the recent period of time we've had kind of some iconic pop stars from mm-hmm. the 70s start to pass away. And, you know, and it's not quite our generation, but like my mum's generation, mm-hmm. their pop stars are now starting to pass. And there's that moment where, you know, I suppose this is that life thing that, you know, we all have our time. And, you know, triathlon being such a young sport, we haven't really had the passing away of... Mm. You know, and probably in this next period of time, we're going to start to see the passing away of some of those early pioneers of the mm. sport. He 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 wasn't old though. He he was. Uh, I'm guessing he was probably late forties to. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, fifties. He wasn't. He he, oh, he had a heart attack. So yeah, yes, so, yeah, but you know, just that point of our sport is so young, and mm. you know, so we're, you know, it's just part of it. The, the circle of life, John. Mm. Okay, Jonbo, this week's discussion. So we got an email through last week from I can't remember who it was, but basically saying I'm. I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning, I sleep is a struggle, I've got family life and all the rest of it, but I can only train at those times. What can I do to look after myself during this time? And so we put the question out there for you guys, and for some reason when John copied the answers onto our answer, got this text stuff, what's all that It doesn't matter. What's that for? It's just a one-line text, you can, you can skip read that. But Bevan, I had to issue, and I didn't actually know that you could do this, I had to issue a yellow card. Who do? To Mark Thatcher. So what happened was, I thought, he put up a stupid comment. I, I wasn't happy about it. I wasn't happy at all. Why? He said, so he said, the secret is, no sex would seem a prerequisite to, so you can get some extra sleep. And I just thought... No sex? Yeah, I said, that's not acceptable. But surely, for, for, particularly for men, yeah. it's the best strategy. Well, yes. Because when, Jombo, when but, you and Belinda have had some good times together, mm. what happens pretty quickly afterwards? Yeah, I know, but you know, it takes a couple of hours to get to that point. <laughs> It takes a couple of hours. Wow. Uh, wow, you are a smooth but, operator. A couple of hours. But, I'm looking for a couple of minutes. But uh, anyway, he said no sex would seem to be a prerequisite, and I thought that's that's not acceptable. And so I tried. I, I knew that you have these new buttons yeah, and stuff yeah, on, on, yeah. on Facebook, and I thought, that, I know there's no dislike, but I thought there must be something at least that I can put on there. And so I clicked on the emoji thing, and I thought, oh, there's nothing there. And then I saw a, a picture of a referee holding up a yellow card. So I gave Mark Thatcher the yellow card. Love your work. Because I think for females, John, now I'm not a female, and I can hardly speak about their sexual experiences, but it keeps them awake, doesn't it? Mm. Like a a guy is like pretty much a sleeping tablet. A girl kind of... I think it puts him to sleep too. They they, they fall fall asleep halfway through. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what happens when you last two hours. Oh, hurry up, John. Okay, Peter Griffin's got, um, where does this start? It's pretty simple for me. I come home from work, have dinner, talk to my wife, do any chores I have to do, perhaps a bit of reading, and then go to bed no later than 8.30. Well, that is pretty early. I usually start getting ready for bed around 8. I make my lunch for work the next day, lay out any clothing, I need for my morning workout, make sure that my garment is charged, etc. I am up between 4 and 4.30 every day, even on weekends. It is just the routine I am in. I can't tell you the last time I set an alarm. I just get a one workout in before work, and if the second workout is a run, I usually do that at lunchtime. Occasionally, after work, bike will be in um, bed, but will be in bed quickly afterwards. I don't miss TV. Uh, the last time I tried to watch anything on TV, I was amazed, but by the amount of <laughs> absolute garbage people stay out watching Phil Elmer uh, I do a couple of really early sessions a week the solution is a lunchtime power nap the real problem is however not how not to dribble over yourself while you're having a kip in the office yeah Peter Jackson I'm oh, sorry Peter Jackson he did the Hobbit but yeah. Michael, um, Matthew Jackson no, he's Wolverine isn't he Michael Jackman Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, Matthew Jackman. <laughs> we'll, 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 you know. I mean, Peter Jackson, I don't know how you got to that. Uh, he's, got, he's got some bullet points here. Early bed, 9pm, no TV. Prioritise family time over time wasters. Uh, be organised. If you need more sleep, be sensible about the training hours. No junk sessions. Good old Arnold Sulikov. He's in Singapore, so they have to get their sessions done by about 7.30 in the morning. So they're up sort of about four, get three hours done. Um, he tries to get a power, la- power nap in at lunch. Nothing fancy, but tw- 20 to 30 minutes, bla- um, and he blacks out. Evening, it's early dinner, and usually to bed by 10 p.m., and he's passed out cold. As many of you believe, I, basic- uh, I be- believe basically no social life outside fellow triathletes. I have kids, a job, but I think before... For all a mental decision, if you decide that the only possibility is a 4am wake up, then make it easy. I never question myself or reconsider the day plan. When the alarm goes off, it's up and go. Like chopping wood or carrying water for my kids, said Simon Whitfield. Okay, Steve Chamberlain Ward has uh, compromised on race distance and set a weekly maximal training times. It's amazing what can be achieved in 8 to 10 hours of training per week if you're willing to compromise. I felt I was never achieve I felt it was never acceptable to go to bed much before my wife 10:30 p.m. nor to be too tired on the weekends to do anything that needed to be done or we wanted to do. Set a routine of training and sleep and stick to it. 18 years in the sport and 16 years with children and I'm still racing. I can't think of anyone I started with the sport who is still racing. It is difficult. Yeah, I don't go to bed before Belinda, well, occasionally just a little bit, but I think it's be hard going to bed and then your wife or partner coming to bed an hour and a half, two hours later. Yeah, it is a funny one because I know f- different relationships, isn't it? Because I like Joe and I, we go to bed together, and mm. and also that time when we go to bed is always a really nice connection time together. So mm. you, you know, we'll go to bed. We tend to go to bed about nine, nine, probably about nine most nights. And but you know, in bed we kind of connect and um, you know, <laughs> so we, <laughs> by two you, minutes. That's what you crazy kids call it these days. <laughs> uh, But you know, like I actually really enjoy the time of my partner. Tony Hodge, uh, keep the alarm clock set on the same time, even on rest days. Sets up a routine for your body, so your body clock adjusts. Ian Johnson's got decent blackout curtains. Help me get a nice extra 30 to 45 minutes sleep in the spring, summer months in the UK. Otherwise, I get bright sunshine streaming in. Nikki Sweetman, she has an interesting tactic. Put the alarm in the bathroom, gear all ready to go. And as for catch-up sleep, haven't worked that one out. So if the alarm's going up in the bathroom... You gotta get up. Well, you, yeah, you do, don't you? 
So in terms of, I think one thing with this. The, 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 so just before we start, I used to have one of these, um, those old school ringer bells. Oh yeah, that'd be pretty noisy. Oh mate, that would, that yeah. would shock you away. Yeah. That was pretty pretty effective. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things with this question, when it got sent in, it was a guy who was actually was saying, how do people actually do this and actually survive with getting up that early in the morning and mm. survive their, their daily daily sort of life and routine and I think sort of Arnold helped put the you know put it out there it's if you want to get to a really high level in triathlon <clears throat> in Ironman especially you've got to compromise in some areas and you've got to compromise you often a little bit in sleep but you've also got to compromise in those areas around social life and stuff and it's not not an easy decision to make but I think that's what you find that a lot of these high level athletes is their social circles are often triathletes, so they don't actually need a lot of social time outside of training. They'll go out on group sessions and so on, but they won't be out, you know, doing social stuff on Saturday evenings mm. and things like that because they've got to get up the next morning. So, if your friends aren't triathletes or your main group of friends, I think this is a lot harder. And if you've got family and stuff, for most of the family people that I know that train at a, at a high level, it's pretty much work, family, and training. And again, there's not a great deal out outside of that. Um, I think a lot of people gripe that they're 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 not morning people, but I reckon that could be changed. I think for most people, you know, actually, you John, I actually read an article yesterday saying that's actually not the case. Yeah, it's a scientific article saying if you're not a morning person, you might be able to do it, but you're never actually physically going to be a morning person. Mm. Like for like, because I I'm like you, very fortunate. We're morning people, mm. so like I'm all, I'm always waking up early, and and I'm kind of. It's never been a problem, but yeah, this article did actually argue differently. I've seen that stuff, Bristol. <laughs> I'm going to dispute <laughs> okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I, I think I, that I, you might be. Able, you'll be able to make it work, but it's always going to be a struggle. Whereas yep. for you and I, we we just. It's you know. I'm not sure if you get up at four thirty in the morning, we might be tired, but hmm. we kind of know how to play that game. So you just, just you've got to get into routine. For me, the way I make it work is I'm in bed um, usually about nine thirty, um, if not earlier, and. I'm lucky and fortunate that I go to sleep pretty easily and then I'm getting up at five o'clock every day um, sort of all the way through the week and usually doing most of my training now at sort of 5.30 even for biking and stuff and but I do I probably struggle if I get less than seven hours some people say they need eight um, for me seven sort of the number that I that I sort of need I think one really important thing though if you are going to be a try to change your patterns to being a morning person or making sure that you are getting adequate sleep as you've got to have, be able to work on strategies to get to sleep again I'm fortunate that I can just go to sleep and mm. reasonably easily clear my mind but when you've got loads on and stuff and your mind's just buzzing it's bloody hard to get to sleep as you all know so having some strategies around that I think is really useful in terms of yoga whatever you can do to try to clear your head before you go to bed uh, I think will help a lot but um, yeah I think probably for a lot of people who are new to the sport it's about um yeah, compromising in some areas to make sure that you're getting enough sleep and just changing those routines a bit. I actually interviewed a guy on fitness behavior maybe a month ago who wrote the book called The Off Switch, which is about mm. how to switch off the head. Before Great. You go to bed. And it was really good. And, and like I've got, like I write a journal every night, and I think journaling is a really healthy thing because it just it is the offload, you mm. know, and so then when you go to bed. But I think John is right. It's that whole idea of what things keep me awake mm. and and even certain behaviors like if i pick up my phone i know i'm probably going to stay up an extra 20 minutes late whereas if i pick up my kindle i'm going to fall asleep in the next five minutes because mm -hmm. reading puts me to sleep it's those little things one thing i would say is probably a good idea and one thing i've done in my life in the last period of time because i'm pre i'm really disciplined with all these types of things but i have one day of a week where it's almost like you let your hair out mm -hmm. and um 
And so like, because Joe and I take Friday off. And so, and we work Saturday morning. So on Friday, on Thursday night, I'll let myself stay up stupidly late. And I'll mm-hmm. literally play iPhone games and, and you know, just kind of, it's, and in some ways it just, I think people are always really disciplined. There's probably two types of people. There's the person who just gets esteem from it and they just kind of build their esteem based on the fact they're so disciplined. But then there's the person who is very disciplined, but there's that sense that I'm still missing out. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I like for me to have that day where, it's, where I kind of am just lazy with my habits and lazy with my eating and all the rest of it. And that... I look forward to that day in a way that's kind of, you know, but then I also know that back on Saturday I'm going to get back to my normal routine. And so if you if you are able to, is to have a day where you do allow, you know, maybe a sleep in or where you all have a day of training and, and those types of things. Other things that I think that are really important is how do I get recharges throughout the day? So like for me, I've, you know, you guys know I've mm. meditated for years. I've meditated since I've been, I've been meditating for 20 years almost. And for me, it's the most powerful tool in my life because, you know, you get to two in the afternoon or around lunchtime and if I don't meditate, the second half of my day just turns to custard. But if mm-hmm. I do, it just has a massive effect. Now, meditation or it could be a nana nap or, you know, something like that, but just looking for ways to recharge because it's not just that how do I train well, but if you're tired, quality of life's a bit crap. Mm. And so if I can, you know, and also not just being tired, but when we think about the energy out that, you know, I mean triathletes put out, you guys are, you know, generally pretty fatigued all the time. Mm. And so rest strategies throughout the day. And then obvious things like nutrition and stuff like that. But also importantly is uh, how do I make sure that I've got energy for the important things like family and stuff Mm. like that. So because, you know, like we're just so fatigued that Mm. it's easy just to think, oh, you know, I'm going to, neglect some things that probably are really important exactly so and and i think john made a really good point before is that maybe sometimes it isn't you you know based on like the reason i gave up ironman was that for me to reach the next level was a compromise i wasn't willing to make exactly you know and, and so i had to accept well you know i've kind of reached you know maybe five minutes off where i wanted to get but you know like i kind of got to the level i wanted to get to and i think that you know you do look at what what are the limits I am going to put around what I'm trying to achieve? And then within that, what can I expect from that? Steve Chamberlain-Ward was good. Yeah, he's been, He said he's been going for uh, for 16 years with, with kids and stuff, and he sort of says compromise on race distance. And, and so what I do now is I sort of go campaign to campaign. For me, trying to do Ironman year in, year out is not going to be sustainable. No. Um, and so I sort of choose to do campaigns, and you know, every couple of years I'll do a race and then do some other bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, for... We see we see so many people coming in and out of the sport, especially with iron distance races. Everything's so centered around Ironman now. And it's if you've got family and full on job, it's bloody hard to maintain all that. And we talk about balance and it's not balanced. When you're doing Ironman, it's not balanced. Um, if you haven't got family and you've just got work and training, I think you can still get a good level of balance. But if you've got those other things going on, you know, maybe consider doing a bit of a, a cyclical plan where you go, right, I'm going to do Ironman every third year. And on the off, uh, other years, maybe I'll do sprint triathlons or whatever it might a be. marathon or something. Mm. The thing I find really fascinating, I was speaking to you at the gym about this last night, that the problem with endurance athletes is just longer becomes the answer. Mm. You know, and speed is, is a pretty cool thing to chase. And if, yeah. in some ways, a lot harder to achieve. Mm. And um, and so, you know, if you are that person who actually realistically goes, you know what, based on what I'm willing to commit to the sport, mm. I need to be more realistic around my expectations in the sport. Well, you can find new challenges that are equally oh, exciting and, and equally challenging. Mm. Um, so, you know, maybe you need to think of those things as well. This week's discussion, Jonbo. What are your best bike tips? So not necessarily... Um, training workouts or anything like that 
But what have you done or what do you see in people that, that maybe, some, maybe sometimes it bugs you that uh, they're not doing to be more skillful on their bike? Okay, good times. The bike tips that bug you basically and how to improve them. Jombo, sponsor. Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Exactly. And also they're on Facebook. And they've got some, I just saw, was sort of scrolling through their Facebook page and they've got some fantastic quotes on there. Here's, here's a good one. Speed may not be my friend, but perse- perseverance sure is. Oh, I love it, Jombo. What do you, fi- uh, I don't know what that one's missed me. What do you finish for? Maybe that was just a question. No, no, yeah. It's like, what do you finish for? What's yeah. the reason you're here? There is no iron team, but there is in running, swimming, and cycling. Oh, Oh, that is Where a bit cheesy, that one. <laughs> what is losing exactly? Getting beat by someone, not hitting your time, not reaching the finish, or not having the courage to start in the first place? I'm feeling inspired. God. That's what I'm feeling about this, this, this camp we're doing. Yes. Because I can't see me winning anything, although it's not a race, luckily. Yes. But I can see the guys I used to ride with just riding off into the distance. <laughs> and then it's going to go, Bev. Yeah, here to have fun. And we got a good group. There's about 35 people coming, I think. So you'll well, so far my training has consisted of nothing. You've done a few bike rides. I've heard you've been saying. I did one bike ride. Yes, okay. I have to admit that. I'm thinking this Friday because Joe's in Wellington. I might try to get a longish ride in. Nice. Yeah. My friend said he reached the runner's high on his run. I mistakenly mistakenly heard him say the runner's cry, which, come to think of it, makes a lot more sense if you ask me. There we go. People are constantly yelling at me. Go jump in a lake. How the heck do they know that I'm training for a triathlon? <laughs> One more, because these are classic. I don't know if this is a great advertisement for Speed. Oh, there we go. That's all of them. So, guys, if you want, if you want to entertain and lighten your day, go to athlinks.com well, no, but they on their Facebook the, the, page. The quotes and stuff, but they've also got some really good articles, so they're, good, they're a good person to follow. Exactly. So, they've got the hiking uh, benefits for, for runners. Um, Tell you what, so when I was in the UK, in the last two days I was here, I basically walked a half marathon every day. Mm-hmm. So I really just thought, bugger this, I'm going to get amongst it and, and walk around because th- walking's a great way to see a city. Mm-hmm. It's pretty tiring. Like, oh, yeah. I think I walked eight hours a day pretty much. So, you, you know, I need my head flex was killing me. You know, it was like, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty demanding. Spectating's hard as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so check it out, athlinks.com. Keep all your results in one place. Okay, John, but we've got an interview with Craig Percival. He did the eight and eight. So let's rock that in right now. Okay, guys. Wait, wait, no. go, go now. Okay, guys. So as you heard uh, a couple of weeks ago, Craig Percival was out there slamming it around Australia, doing eight iron distance um, sort of races, simulations in eight days. And for those of you that don't know Australia, it's a bloody big country, so there's a lot of logistics getting from from place to place. Plus, it is uh, not peak of summer, but even if it's not the peak of summer, Australia is a bloody hot place. So no doubt there were plenty of challenges along the way and we're going to hear about it. So welcome back to the show, Craig. Uh, good morning, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show again. Um, I, I know you started up in, in Darwin and uh, you had a pretty hot first day, but given you're, you're a week down the track now, maybe tell us how you're feeling in contrast to how you felt after Ultraman, which is a, which is a pretty, pretty epic couple of days as well. So how, how are you feeling a week after all has been done? Uh, definitely the biggest difference is um, more the, the, and the biggest challenge I faced was the sleep deprivation and, mm. and it's certainly not something we really, you know, we looked at our timelines pretty closely beforehand and we saw, you know, you go, okay, well, swim bike run, I'll add up to this and even if it's a bad day, I'll add up to this but we still thought I'd get some sleep um, uh, really wasn't the case through through the middle through um hobart and canberra 
it uh, it kind of blew out a little bit. But um, so you know, uh, the the real difference in this post week has has not been so much um, muscle soreness because you know I just wasn't in the position to be able to certainly race the Ironmans at all. So there was it hasn't been a massive amount of muscle soreness. Certainly been very lethargic. Um, my biggest challenge is that I actually haven't been able to sleep, which is which has been a little bit confronting because um, I expected to sleep a lot. Man, on those final two and three Ironmans, I mean, I actually had, got to the point where I actually had to pull over and, and have a quick 10-minute power nap because I knew I was falling asleep on the bike. So wow. I was expecting to sleep a lot this week, and it hasn't really happened. So it's just the body's way. Obviously, you know, there's not too many precedents for this, what I've done, I believe, and I never really, I never chatted with anyone pre about, you know, what to expect on the sleep but, um, deprivation side, so uh, outside of that, the body's not too bad, the knee's a little, my knee's a little bit banged up, but I'll get an ultrasound on that tomorrow, and um, yeah, uh, come, coming around, short-term memory's not too great, I've had a couple of conversations with people that uh, a few days after I realised I have, I, I can't recall, but um. Look, all, all of that, I'm sure, will come back to normal uh, in due course. Oh, it, was, it was good of us to get you up at 5.30 in the morning to yeah. do this interview then. Get you back awake. <laughs> you know. Sorry, who am I speaking with again? <laughs> so um, you opened up in uh, day one up in Darwin, and we had an email through from uh, Michael up there saying you were laying the smack down on the bike and, and rode a five-hour, 15-bike split and then had to sort of shuffle through the run given, given the heat. Um, I, I guess maybe talk us through day one and... In hindsight, did you did you go a little bit too hard, or was it just smooth roads and you were you were feeling good? No, so I made the mistake on the very first one of not taking my Garmin off auto pause, right? Or sorry, it was on auto pause or whatever. Um, so yeah, actual ride time was five seventeen or whatever, and um, but we we had a few stops because it was so warm. So look, each day was was amazing, and they, each day had its different challenges. So. Look, I felt a million dollars in Darwin, and Michael um, did a great job on because we were so you know we started the ride at three a.m. in Darwin. Now I don't know Darwin at all, so basically how it worked was I'd, it was just Michael and I, and Michael was sitting on the back of me trying to yell out directions as to where we were going. So you know, there's no course mark- markings or marshals or whatever. So he had a mate come out, and his mate sat on the back and just yelled out directions. But what happened midway through was my wife um, and her, um, you know, she had a friend in the car as well. We, we kind of got separated and we lost each other for I don't know, maybe half an hour or whatever. So, of course, we ran out of water and, and all of that sort of thing. So we just had stops along the way to make sure. So that was a classic example of, okay, well, you know, obviously we can't let that happen again. And, and I was trying to get Darwin done sooner rather than later and and it ended up exactly like we thought it was going to be 33 34 but with a real feel of like low 40s mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happened so um there's no way i went too hard it was just like i'd done an ironman taper i just felt absolutely amazing and i'm sure if i looked at my heart rate file it would be quite low but um i don't know darwin was it was a great lesson and you know we had a course plan for darwin like a 5k loop but you know, once we got we'd done one lap of that, I was like, "Nah, there's no way we're doing this," and we changed the run course because mm-hmm. I just need. You know, it was so hot that you know we ended up doing a 700 meter out and back, 700 meters one way, 700 meters the other, because it was you know basically you know low 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that was the first uh, first real I guess that it was really good that that happened early because to me it really just forced me to put my I guess ego in my pocket I'd had in my head the whole time I was going to do uh, you know one hour swim six hour ride and then a four hour run and that was kind of a goal I had mm. but I very quickly very quickly at some point like early in the marathon I went from feeling amazing we got a little bit you know, we'd been separated on the bike and then I got a little bit thirsty early on the run and I was like, you know what, this is stupid. Stop pushing for a four, just get the job done. So um, I don't know, I, I feel proud that I was able to kind of recognise that and not in any way put the, I guess, the mission in danger. And so from that point, I just um, settled into kind of a walk run and, we, you know, we, we got my body temperature back down a little bit and just got it under control. Um and got through the marathon. Um, yeah, so Darwin was a real cracker of a first one to, um, to have it that warm. Um, amazing support in Darwin. And there's one thing I got throughout the whole eight, the, the support from people I didn't know or the support from, I guess, the tri community that came out. Um, and Darwin was the first exposure to that. It was, was, was extremely humbling and it was just amazing. You know, for what is... I guess we know it's seen as a, a selfish sport at sometimes. Um, a number of people that came out uh, to all sorts of hours, through all sorts of hours in the day, it was amazing. You know, Darwin in the middle of the day through the heat, and then Brisbane, I had eight people walking with me at 4 a.m. in the morning. It was some. Um, so it, it's been an amazing, uh, an amazing experience on that emotionally that side of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, that was that was Darwin. Got through Darwin, finished. Uh, so we started at two a.m. in Darwin. We probably finished at I don't I actually don't know the splits. Probably around two p.m. So we had three three and a half hours before the flight, and that was excellent. I got taken to Stu and Ali Fitch's house, and I sat in an ice bath for half an hour, and it was just it was a great recovery. I basically, left their house, you know, hour and a half before the flight, and I actually felt a million bucks. I felt really good. So from what had gone, you know, several hours before where I was definitely overheating and it was getting a little bit warm. Um, I think we recovered that one really, really well. Yeah. So, so you, then you, you sort of moved on to Perth and Adelaide and, and it sounded like by the time you got to about day four, you were pretty pretty smoked and your, your feet were in a pretty bad pretty bad way. What sort of happened over those, those few days there as you went across Perth day two and for non-Southern Hemisphere athletes that is going from the top of Australia, which is bloody hot, across to the western coast, which is out in the, the middle of nowhere and, and almost another, you know, so it's one part of Australia is almost disconnected from the rest of the country. Um, t- talk us through those those few days there and, and how your body sort of started to deteriorate and especially your feet. Yeah, so I don't know what the flight was from, I don't know, just to help people give an idea of the distance, but I think from Darwin to Perth it's probably three and a half hours flight something like that so i know from melbourne up to darwin which you know it, it, we just went in a position it's funny you think about it like the event as i you know we flew into darwin the day before you know i just we weren't in a position um you know in our normal lives to fly out any earlier so there was no acclimatizing there was no getting my head into race week I was basically flew in the day before and um we did a great presentation with um a, a young kid, um, a young eight-year-old boy whose name is Samuel, and it was just a perfect way to, to kick off the event in Darwin. So, yeah, we headed off to um, Perth. Uh, Perth was the same thing. It's a very different heat in Perth. You know, same thing. It was low, low 30s, 33, 34, and, but I had a, a really great day in Perth. Um, 
good, excellent swim. Um, the biggest curveball initially for Perth was um, my bike. I guess the guy who was going to take me on the bike course, um, he had to pull the pin at midnight the night before with tonsillitis. Oh, so, no. So I um, was lucky enough that a couple of the people that came on the bike ride with me, they were, were good enough to same story kind of just just jump on my wheel and yell directions and it wasn't a, a technical bike course it's actually a, a bike lane that goes all the way down the freeway t- towards Bustleton from Perth basically but there's definitely some stuff at the start and then stuff at the end that would have been incredibly hard on my own to to navigate to get back to where the run was so um but that you know that I don't know that's I love that sort of stuff of okay well here's a little curveball how do we manage it and, and we did and um, Perth was an excellent day. It really, and you know, I rode another five thirty or something. So Perth was also the most critical time day for us at at the start of the whole, um, I, I guess, journey. We had we absolutely categorically had to do a sub eleven, um, and it worked. Uh, once again, another curveball midway through the nineteen k. I remember it really well. My 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 best mate Shane and I. He was on his mountain bike, feeding me water, and it was hot and all of that. And then he went off to get some sunscreen, and sure enough, what I thought would be a, a five-minute bike ride to grab the sunscreen from his wife ended up being a half hour. You know, they, they got separated, so him and I got separated, and once again, we ran a little bit dry on water, and um, it kind of just all went from being really cruisy and comfortable to, holy crap, get me some water, get me some ice, start mm-hmm. overheat, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you know, just just made good decisions. Um, I guess in you know, uh, uh, not being afraid. You know what? I'm just going to walk for a couple of minutes. I'm just going to get it under control and, and and keep it all all cool. And and then we ran out the ran out the highway out to the Perth airport. We finished at ten to four, and we had a presentation at four p.m. at Perth airport where they gave us a thousand bucks. So you know, and then we jumped on it. Then we you know we went inside and. It was it was a very cool moment because it's something I kind of envisaged that might happen. I'm standing in the Virgin Land in in their shower because they got some showers in there, and they and they called boarding, and I was like actually standing in the shower. I was like, oh, this is this is exactly kind of what I thought might happen. And sure enough, we made the flight okay, no problems at all, and all of a sudden we're on a plane to Adelaide, and like we weren't even in Perth, but we were in Perth for 21 hours. I worked out so. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of it's just like you're inside. When it was happening, it was like we were inside this this circus or this bubble, and it, it, the whole time it really felt quite surreal. Um, so yeah, on to Adelaide. Adelaide we thought would be the recovery day because we flew into Adelaide on the what would have been the Monday night, and we actually had two nights there. So we flew in Monday night, did the event Tuesday, and then we stayed Tuesday night. We just couldn't get out of Adelaide in time to get to Hobart. So we thought, okay, well, we'll spend two nights in Adelaide. So same story, just thought, okay, well, this is cool. We'll treat Adelaide as a recovery day. It'll be great. So, but we got hit with some weather again. And, you know, look, I know it was definitely one of the hotter March weeks in Australian history. And we just happened to nail it perfectly. So it was another 35 degree day. And <laughs> funny, I had people come out and run with me and they say, oh, Craig, it's so great that I'm here. My son's soccer was cancelled. So I didn't have to go to that. <laughs> <laughs> like okay great yeah. <laughs> but it was it was really cool I had, uh, it was my first meeting with a guy named Scott Lampshire and this is the type of um, people that kind of got involved with the event now I never I didn't know Scott at all I met him at the pool and he jumped in and he did the whole swim with me the whole bike with me and ended up doing the whole run um, 
great guy and, and the guy ends up coming across to Melbourne and did you know did the last event with me just because he just wanted to help out he'd really helped in Adelaide as had a lot of other people um, so that whole you know community spirit or, or people it's just it was really I'll say it again it was a very humbling experience from people that are that are just good people that that just kind of stepped up to just help for no other reason but you know ended up being a massive part of the reason why we achieved our goal for the, you know the John McLean Foundation of 80 grand you know I had some very very dark patches but lots of people came along and distracted me to ultimately get me to the line each day so um, that side of it yeah once again that side of it was amazing and something I'll never forget so so, so you roll into, yeah. into Hobart on day four. Um, I, yep. I'm sure people are interested to know, um, and I, I heard you say on a different interview on, on the radio that one of the, or it might have been somewhere online, one of the challenges was, was getting the calories in. I mean, sleep was one thing, but being able to absorb what you needed to be able to absorb. So what were you doing for nutrition on a daily basis? Uh, first two days, and sorry, I'll answer your question about the toes in a minute. I realised I didn't answer that one. But on the, on the first two days, I definitely, um, because they... To me, they needed to be a little bit quicker. I definitely went predominantly gels. Um, uh, after day two, I definitely tried to switch to more solids. Um, but what we found and kind of what I know with my body is I can look at one thing one day. And I remember Adelaide. Adelaide was custard tarts, right? And <laughs> I, I don't know how many of those I slammed down, but they went down perfectly. And, and nothing really upsets my guts anymore. So... Adelaide was custard tarts. I think Hobart was was just sandwiches, um, and then you know Canberra would have been something else. Uh, it, it's uh, I'm a little bit. Ch- I know I'm very challenging for some of my my support crew because you know one day I can look at a custard tart and go yeah, and then the next day it's like almost makes me feel like throwing up. So, um, you know my support was great. It was just giving me options. They just reel off options and then they drive up ahead and stop in at a bakery and get it or or whatever. So. Um, definitely, I think my body towards the end settled down a little bit and, and, you know, with the heart rate each day slowly getting lower and lower, you know, there's not that, yes, there's not the, um, there's not the urgency to make sure you get in, you know, 300 calories an hour or, or whatever the number was, because certainly, you know, I, I, you know, I stopped wearing my heart rate monitor after probably day five or six, because I just know that my heart rate was, was really, really depressed, which, is what you'd expect on an event like this. Um, to go back to my feet, uh, yeah, because of that heat in the first three days in particular, um, you know, it involved an, a, ma- a lot of water on the run in keeping me cool, and we used lots of ice, um, the same as you would in a race, ice under the hat, ice down the jocks, running with ice in my hands, and um, but with that obviously comes really wet feet, and swollen feet mean, you know, banged up toes and, and toenails and blisters and all of that. To be honest, they weren't. Um, they looked, look, at night times, they were a little bit sore. And, and when you took my shoes off at the end of each day, they, they looked horrendous. But on a pain scale, they didn't actually hurt while I was running. It was like when they were wrapped up in a shoe and shoelaces tied. It, um, it really wasn't that big a deal at all. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, onto, onto Hobart. Um, Hobart was a good one because I picked my kids up th- as we went through. So we left Adelaide, went via Melbourne and, and picked my kids up in Melbourne. That was, that was a, a really great, I guess, pick up to see them what, on what was basically about to be 
my halfway Ironman. And Hobart's where I grew up and did all my training and have a lot of family and friends down there. So that was a great day to to do that in front of them. And then you know I had I had you know one one person in particular, Michael Anderson, who's been you know a training partner for the last twenty odd years, and he came out and did the whole ride with me. So that was 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 really good to ride over some some old training ground and um yeah you know hobart hobart's not hobart's not very warm very often but mm. for whatever reason it decided to be i don't know 27 or 29 and uh <laughs> you know that happens probably about bloody five days a year in, in tasmania that it's kind of that warm so but you know to be honest it was still I didn't actually feel that hot in Hobart, and it sounds like I'm making excuses, but um, yeah. I'm certainly not. It was it was a good day in Hobart. Um, it was the first. No, it wasn't the first. It was um. It was the first longer ride. The, the ride in Hobart ended up taking seven hours, and that was basically because I was a little bit too pig-headed in sticking to a course I knew, and and we just punched into this headwind for a couple of hours. I think by the time we turned, we had an average of like. 23 k's an hour or something because slightly uphill and into this headwind and blah 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 um but then when we made the decision i remember asking um i remember asking someone right what's the forecast for the seat you know when's the seat seat change going to come in he was like look the wind's due to change any second so we're like okay well let's let's not be let's change and we we changed direction and we just created a new course a flatter i don't know 15k loop course you know not too far out of hobart and um Anyway, so that was the first real day that the ride blew out. So that ended up being seven hours instead of you know every other ride so far had been sub six. So you know all of a sudden you're starting to run you know basically an, at least an hour later than you planned, and that's kind of how it also rolled the, later in the week was with just these reasons why and whether it was media that showed up, which you know um, was great of the media to come along and you know obviously do those interviews, but you know that. That adds fifteen, and um, I don't know, just just reasons why the days ended up longer, and uh, I wouldn't change anything. They're just factors that we probably didn't give enough weight to prior. So uh, Hobart got done, finished at about I'm going to say one. No, we know it was probably more like midnight, um, and that was the first, um, definitely my first my first real exposure that I knew something wasn't quite right in terms of I remember driving home and my sister was driving me home and I actually just felt really drunk I, I was kind of trying to focus on the lights and I've had this conversation with my sister and, and she said yeah this that's how it was was I kept I was trying to focus on the lights but I, I felt like I had a thousand beers and I couldn't quite focus on them um, and I actually had to ask her to, to get ready to pull over because I felt like I was going to throw up from the from feeling dizzy um so that was a little bit, I was like, oh, geez, okay, that one obviously took it out of me. But I think back to the run in Hobart, and I don't know, in my head, it, it actually wasn't too bad. So, um, yeah, so that was that was kind of interesting, you know, fell into bed, and we got three hours sleep in Hobart, um, and then went off to the airport, uh, headed for Canberra, and I did a radio interview in Hobart Airport, and and I just, there was a just, that was the first real moment they are some pretty good questions and i just remember that being kind of one of the first moments of like okay we've done four and my yeah my toes were I had my thongs on and my toes were not looking pretty and and it was you know coming up a little bit not so much sleep i was like holy crap you know i thought once we got past darwin and perth 
with Adelaide being an easy day, I remember thinking if we can just get the first two out of the way, will the rest will actually be okay. But I remember at that point going, holy crap, I've still got four to go. And that was the first real time it was like, we've still got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was not what I expected. But let's just put it that way. So, but I don't know, Lyndall and I, we somehow we got our stuff together and um, I could, it was that was the best part about the one of the best parts about the travel was the travel actually I didn't find that hard at all for me it was a great opportunity to consume some calories and actually just chill out and relax you know because I, I couldn't do anything other than sit there so um, got some some okay calories in on the on the flight to Melbourne and then you had to jump on another flight to Canberra and uh, half hour delay in Canberra and you know, I was feeling a bit sore and sorry for myself as we got into Canberra pool and we knew the forecast for Canberra again and, you know, another 35 day. But the best, the, without a doubt, one of the highlights of the event, we walked into Canberra and there's a young kid named uh, named Robbie Johnson and he's, tw- I think he's about 20 now. Um, just a, a young, yeah, beautiful young boy in a wheelchair and I met Robbie and Robbie got hit. He was studying medical science at uni got hit a couple of years ago while he was walking across a pedestrian crossing by a car and yeah he's he's not too well but he's um was lucky enough to run with his dad that night his dad came out and ran 15 k's with me and robbie's making big improvements um but robbie sat on the side of the pool while i'm swimming laps and i could hear him yelling go craig go craig and then he uh, didn't realize but uh, until i kind of did a tumble turn and then he'd actually jumped into the water and was swimming next to me and he actually he kicks and swims really well so he's lying on his back and just holding a floaty and had his mum helping him and i'll never forget it boys it was without a doubt one of the best moments of my life he's lying next lying next to me going go craig go craig while he's kicking along right (laughs) it was just um i know it was a real it was a real spark that just put a put it right in front of me it's like you know craig you know you know life's amazing what you're doing you chose to do and and it was just perfect it was just perfect and and i'll never forget robbie and his parents for for giving giving me that gift of you know what everything's okay craig you'll get through this and um yeah so that that was you know it's just another one of those moments that i didn't expect we didn't know robbie was going to be at the pool and um you know if he hadn't have been there who knows how sorry i would have felt for myself for the rest of that day but um it was just perfect. So um, yeah, I spent a few laps kicking with him, and yeah, very lucky. Yeah. You, you moved on to Sydney, and, and Crowe joined you in Sydney. Yeah, so got through Canberra. Canberra was ugly. We finished Canberra at one thirty a.m. in the morning or something. Um, the plan, the whole plan for Sydney had been to fit. Canberra had been finished more at like eleven p.m. Um, so we drove. The plan had been to then we were going to finish in Canberra, drive to a hotel in Sydney, get about. We thought we'd get about two to three hours sleep. Well, that didn't happen. We finished at 1.30. We left Canberra at 2 a.m. I know I slept for about the first half hour, um, but I was really worried about the girls falling asleep on the drive from Canberra to Sydney. So, yeah, I, and I wasn't feeling too good. I was a bit banged up in the back of the back of the Tarago or whatever it was. And um, so we just drove into Sydney. We had a, a good long chat. We got into Sydney at exactly 6 a.m., went straight to the pool, um, and, yeah, walked into the pool and, you know, once again feeling – feeling worried about how we were going to get through the next three and you know there's crowey and and john mcclain there in his wheelchair and 
That was good. The boys were excellent. They didn't say too much. They didn't say too little. We just had a little bit of chat about where things were at. And then um, Crowey was great. He just kind of said, come on, let's go for a swim. And, and we jumped in and we swam a few laps. And funny moment, we were, I don't know how, I have no idea how far we'd done. And um, I kept getting a little bit dizzy on the tumble turns. But I wasn't sharp enough to not tumble turn. I just kind of kept tumble turning and, <laughs> and swimming. And Crow goes, look, you need to have something to eat and drink. So I managed to get a few bits of watermelon in. And and then within a couple of laps of that, it was great. I, I felt my appetite come back because I actually hadn't been able to eat anything since since we finished in Canberra. And, um, and then straight away, I just I just demolished some sort of thick shake and a, and a muffin or something and, and it felt heaps better but we're standing at the shallow end and I'm ingesting these calories and uh, Crow goes g'day Steve and um, I kind of just remember looking up at some guy and, and just I just kept you know ingesting those calories or whatever and I just heard everyone just piss himself with laughter I was like oh, what and sure enough it kind of took my goggles off and had a closer look and it was Steve War and oh, wow. um, yeah yeah he'd come out um He's mates with John and Crowey, and um, he'd come out to support. He'd heard about what was going on, and um, John had been good enough to ask him to come down. And and so that was quite like a slightly embarrassing moment that you've uh, not recognised the you know, so, former so, captain of Australia. Yes, yeah, so for, um, for non-Aussies non and Kiwis, Steve Wall was the captain of the Australian cricket team, which is like probably one of the biggest sporting sort of uh, and a, and positions a, you can have. Yeah, you know, pretty important yeah, position. Yeah, he would definitely be you know classed as a legend of Australian sport so you know I'm swimming next to Crowey who's a three times you know Ironman champion and how many half I think you know one world halves and John McLean standing there he's not John's not standing you know not sitting in his wheelchair he's standing there and Steve Wars there and we're chatting about a few things and it was just um it was just amazing it was once again another massive pick-me-up that I'd needed after a pretty dark four hours driving from Canberra to Sydney and it was great. And those guys, you know, they all came out. So uh, John and I had a really good conversation. I, I desperately needed some massage work, which is um, – so I got a, got some treatment on on a few issues on the table. And John and I had an excellent chat. Uh, was, John's always been someone I've respected. And, and he's one of the reasons I got into the sport, you know, in 95. He was the first wheelchair athlete to finish Hawaii. And um, he – yeah, he just uh, he just broke it down. He simplified it. He in, in a, kind of not in a subtle way but there was no come on Craig you got to harden up it was it was really a conversation of you know people knew where I was at um the social media hype at that point had really kind of taken off now I wasn't I wasn't really in a position to follow it but I was hearing it but you know we were kind of Kate and Lyndall were just saying they'll keep me updated on what the fundraising was at and you know it was really we knew that there was like kind of something building and John was great. He goes, look, Craig, you know, everyone knows where you're at. You've done, you've raised, at that point, we only raised 30 grand or so, not only, we'd raised 30 of the 80 grand, but mm -hmm. we were five minutes in and it was kind of like, God, we've still got so far to go. So we kind of just spoke about, you know, everyone would understand if I'd pull the pin after five. And he said, you know, not that everyone expects you to pull the pin, but people will understand and what you've done is amazing. You've raised this amount. You've done something you know, five Ironmans in five days. There's lots of positives, lots of exposure for the foundation, all of this. But then, you know, he just he just put it to me. He was like, but you know what, Craig, you can also just jump on the bike and, and just ride five minutes down the road and see what happens. And, um, you know, that, that's something I say 
to my athletes is, you know, don't overthink it when you wake up of a morning about how fatigued you are or whatever. Just just get started, you know, just get out the door. It's kind of like the Nike slogan, just do it and just give the body a chance. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I, you know, really good chat with him and we just jumped on the bikes and, and John rode, I think John rode the first, I don't know, 60 Ks with me and it was just great. We, we took the pressure off. I guess, you know, I, I still was worried about, stupidly was not worried about what people would think on social media, but we were just worried about if I tried to keep pushing day after day. So um, Kate and I made, a, I, I believe, a really smart decision to tell people that, okay, well, look, we were changing the schedule. So we decided we knew there was no way we could fly out of Sydney that night. So we just put it up there that, you know, Craig was going to walk the marathon um, and I knew that was kind of what was needed. I'd had basically three hours sleep in three three nights or whatever it was, and um, so we walked the marathon. And that was, you know, once again, that was a, an amazing moment after Steve Ward ridden with me, Crowey had ridden with me. You know, there was this um, someone at some point put up a hashtag called Walk with Craig, and it just wasn't what I expected, you know. And, and because I was walking, I was actually had my phone. I was actually first real real opportunity to have a look at some social media and it was just amazing the amount of positivity that there was um it was it was really incredible and you know we ended up walking that marathon and it's not something still now that comes easy to me to say that we intentionally walked that marathon but the reality was it was 100 percent critical for me to to finish off 88 um i, I think if i tried to run I, i'd really don't know if my body would have coped with it or if I would have fallen asleep running or I, I have no idea so um yeah and, the, and John himself walks the last two kilometers with me it's like 1am we're walking along Cronulla Beach it's 1am in the morning and here I am walking with John McLean who was like you know one of my original sources of inspiration the guys maybe another dozen people from Cronulla Tri Club who had walked the whole way with me it's just staggering to, to think about that there are people that are that good to, to help someone that they don't know. It's um, yeah, it's amazing, guys. So I'm, I'm glad nobody uh, set up a hashtag walk with John when I was walking in the Ironman run. So you're moving on to your last couple of days there. Um, yep. you, know, you had Brisbane and then Melbourne was obviously going to be a bit of a different experience being on your, your home your home course and you managed to get onto the F1 track. Yeah, great. Uh, so, you know, Kate Patterson, who uh, who is, a, is now is a very, very dear friend, um, you know, maybe six or nine months ago. Uh, yeah, so Kate organised that. But, you know, just to, to rewind a little bit, Kate, you know, just put her hand up six or nine months ago when we realised, you know, for us to really get to 80,000, you know, part of me is kind of a little bit old score is like oh let's just go and do it let's just go and raise the 80k we'll try and do the fundraising there's no way we would have got to 80,000 without the organization that, that went into this event and and made it what it is you know we we ended up with a uh, 4,000 likes in our Facebook page but most importantly we got to the 80,000 so you know I, I have to give to love some love to, to Kate and and our immediate organizing crew they did a fantastic job um, and critically help us get to our target. So, um, yeah, Brisbane was, um, yeah, so we got a couple of hours sleep at Sydney Airport, went to Brisbane, 
Brisbane's a little bit um, still sketchy for me. I, I, I don't remember a lot of it. Um, I remember a young girl with spina bifida coming up from driving up from the Gold Coast, and, and she rode the last 20 k's with us on the bike. Her name's Sarah Tate, and that was excellent. Um, I had a lot of support from from friends. We used to live in Brisbane, so a lot of support again from the tri community in Brisbane. And, and the, the biggest curveballs for, for, for Brisbane were we, we actually left my running shoes on the plane, but we'd put them stupidly. We'd put them in a separate bag because they were just soaking wet, and um, and Lindell didn't kind of want to put them into our. So each day we travelled, we had certain critical things that travelled with me on the plane. So one was bike shoes and the other was running shoes. We kind of figured, you know, and, and I think it might have been wetsuit. You know, everything else we could have, I could have borrowed off a mate or, or we, you know, we had a backup plan, whether it was bike or helmet or whatever um, we knew. But there were certain critical things we carried every day on the plane. And sure enough, we left the running shoes on the plane. So we did have some spares. So, you know, when I finished the bike, we, uh, we kind of realised that happened. So... Um, someone raced up. Someone was good enough to race off to the the hotel and and retrieve those. So I had it, you know, maybe a half hour break at the end of the run, and I know there was a bit of a problem with my knee. So um, I was lucky enough to have some physios on site, and they did some strapping. So Brisbane once again didn't end up as we thought. I was very keen to have a run in Brisbane after walking in Sydney, um, but the, unfortunately my knee just wasn't wasn't playing and. Once again, we had to had to walk a bit, and, uh, and yeah, the, the sleep deprivation got to me. And, and share a little bit of I, I share a story that um, we finished at quarter past five in the morning, uh, massively long night. And you know, once again, I had eight people I think walking with me, and it still feels very surreal now. They were walking around, walking around Brisbane, trying to and walk jogging by that stage. My knee had come good, and I was able to jog the last little bit. My knee had come good, and we were people pouring out of nightclubs and the casino and we were trying to find meters, right? We kind of arrived in the city at, I don't know, 38, 39 or 40 K and we had to find two kilometers around the city. So, um, I got myself into a, a little bit of a state and it only happened kind of as we were in the hotel room afterwards. I actually had, I actually said to my wife, I was disappointed that I couldn't run and, and I was a bit angry at myself because you know, I really wanted to run. And you guys go, oh, Craig, we'll just, you know, run, run the one this afternoon. I just remember going, what are you talking about? And he goes, Craig, look, it's all cool. You can run the one this afternoon, run it as hard as you want. I was like, what, what are you going on about? And at that point, because all week and also basically in the prep, I'd always knew that Melbourne emotionally would take care of itself. It was like, you know, I'm going to be around my family, my friends. It's the final one. Um, you know, I'd listened to the Iron Cowboy and, and watched him closely. And, you know, his final one in Utah, you know, he talks about that was his best one or his fastest one. So... In my head, I'd always thought about that it was seven. I was going to do, I just had to get through seven and the last one would take care of itself. So, because, so I'm having this conversation and then the kind of the, the penny dropped, I'd actually forgotten that I still had Melbourne to do. And then at that point, it was, it was kind of like, holy crap, I really am tired. And I just remember basically falling asleep and then kind of waking up at the airport and, um, and then, then just sleeping on the plane, and so that it, yeah, it was that was a really confronting moment that I just realised how, how tired I was. Um, yeah, so you know that that was Brisbane, and unfortunately I don't remember a lot of, about Brisbane, but I, I got to send a lot of love to a lot of people in Brisbane who helped me through a, a pretty long day. So um, yeah, thanks to those guys. 
And anyway, then, on to cheerier and, things. Um, and then you wrapped I, it up in Melbourne? I went to Melbourne, and Melbourne was just awesome. Um, swam at the Pran Pool, beautiful pool, outdoor pool. We did a, a presentation um, for a grant to a, a little little two-year-old boy named Tommy. Um, yeah, you know, him and his parents have, have got some challenges ahead of him, but that was just a, he's just a beautiful little boy. And, um, yeah, did the swim um, and did the bike and, and was fortunate enough to and apparently at some point there were like 50 people in the bunch and, you know, I don't get to see a lot of that because, you know, my goal was just to sit on the front the whole time, obviously, and not draft and all of that. So but I had a lot of my athletes come out with me and, and a lot of friends come out with me. And it was just exactly how I imagined the final one to be. It was I was just surrounded by family and friends and, um, and we finished the ride and, uh, yeah, catered, organised for the, the, the Grand Prix um had you know basically it's a closed track you know but they opened it up and they gave us a you know gave us a, a three kilometer section entirely for us to use and it was a perfect night it wasn't hot it was 20 degrees and it was a clear night and it just ended up being you know for me one of the definitely one of the best days of my life you know my, it was everything i'd imagined my kids ran with me for the final couple of kilometers you know at this point it was like 4 a.m right but i still had I don't know. I don't know how many people towards the end, 20 people running with me and there were still, you know, I don't know how many people were still at the finish line, 100 people or something. And it was just exactly what I wanted and envisaged. And we knew that the, I was still getting updates on the fundraising and the fundraising was flying at that point. We'd gone from 30,000 two days before. And I think by the time we finished, we were at 70. So there was just this real momentum and it was, I know it was just all I was lucky enough to kind of still be aware that it was it was happening um yeah and we finished and um it was you know I actually do remember thinking I really don't want this to finish I, I really loved Melbourne that much that I was like you know what I actually don't want this to finish you know it's the end of what's been an you know obviously an amazing eight days but the prep you know, I loved everything about the, the organization leading into it, you know, the training leading into it. And so in a, in a strange kind of way, I, I remember thinking, God, I wish this would still just keep rolling. It's, it's what I love. And, um, but it finished and it was, it was awesome. I had my wife by my side for the last, um, couple of Ks on the run. And, you know, it's something her and I will, you know, we'll obviously never forget. And I, I feel, very proud of what we did and we, we eventually rolled over to the $80,000 I think the next day uh, or, or two days after and it was just it was just perfect I, I, I don't know if we could actually script it any better in terms of hitting our targets and um, the positivity that was involved around the event you know I look back you know when Kate and I and Lindell sat down six months prior I was like okay what do we want out of this well one we want to raise the money that was absolute priority and Two, we knew to raise the money, we had to do the eight Ironmans. But three was, you know, we just wanted it to be a really, really positive experience for everyone. I, I just didn't want any negativity um, around the event. I, I, and and that's kind of what happened. You know, you look at the feeds or whatever. It's, it was great. I had ten year old, a, a side, not a side story, a very real part of it was, you know, ten year old and eight year old and twelve year old kids coming out and running with me for hours on end i'll never this little kid ran with me for like 12 kilometers in canberra wow 
and it was just amazing, you know. And then he, you know, he said at the end, or he's you know talking to his parents, you know, while I was having a little rest, and I'm like, Craig, little little Johnny ran 12 k's with you. He's never run more than three before. Or there was one young 14 year old girl who ran a half marathon with me in Canberra, Michaela. I, <laughs> her parents were just beside themselves, and she sent me a private message the other day to say she'd gone off and won some race, and just um. Just amazing little stories, not little stories, very important stories of people um, just getting involved and just loving it. And I, I met with someone the other day and, and he said, and he was he was he helped us in Canberra, and he said, yeah, Craig, there was just this real, and I'd never thought of it this way, but he, he know it. He goes, Craig, there were people that just didn't want to leave your side. There were people that were just legitimately worried about how you were doing. And I know I, there was times I was horrendous, but... Yeah, I keep saying it, guys. It's humbling to have people that you don't know that care about you enough to just go, you know what, I'm just going to run another couple of laps with this guy. Um, and I don't know, when you see kids doing that, and you, you know, I remember looking down and seeing a couple of boys of, of, of a, a friend in Hobart running with me, and I, I don't know how far they ran with me, but it was a bloody long way. Um, it just puts a smile on your face. And, and it, you know, just for me, it just added a, a perfect distraction for... You know, instead of thinking about how my legs were feeling or my guts or whatever, I was like, no, nah, this is cool. This is just really cool. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I, that, 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 that side of it I, I feel very happy about. Yeah. Well, mate, you've, you've, well, done, mate, you've, you've, you've done a bloody good effort. And um, you should be really proud of what you've done yeah. and for yourself, for your community, for the fundraising. Um, you know, just it's a bloody impressive thing. And I'm sure our audience and many other people in the triathlon community and the real community just love what you've done. So love your work, mate. Thanks for coming on the show. You're a star. Thanks so much, guys. Look, if I can quickly just say, the last time I chatted with you guys, unfortunately, my website was down. So I, I really apologize to, to anyone. But look, if anyone... This is a shameless plug, but you know, if anyone still tried last time to donate because they they couldn't unfortunately last time because of our website issues, um, the, the my website is still up, which is nolimitsendurance.com.au. There's a link through there, or you can just go directly to the Everyday Hero site. Um, our fundraising is still open. Um, look, it, it's an amazing cause, the John McLean Foundation, and, and uh, I feel very lucky to be working with them. And um, yeah, if anyone still wants to, to throw a few dollars our way, we of course much love and, and would appreciate it. So thanks and guys. Thanks and guys I'll put that on um I'll put the link on www.imtalk.me. Awesome mate, thanks for coming on, you're a star. Thanks guys. Okay, Jumbo, we are back. That's a good effort. We've actually recorded this interview before we've list, done this part of the show, so we don't know what happened. But Jumbo, let's do another sponsor. F, uh, no, I'm done, Athlinks.com. Um, extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer, Jombo. It seems like it's come to your saviour again. Crisis was averted last week. Crisis <laughs> was averted. Last week, I said, oh, I've got a bit of a tickle in the throat. Started slamming down the immune boost. All gone. Good old had uh, good old Zania Morrison, stalker, emailing yeah. me yesterday. So I need some immune boost. Everybody's sick in the office. She's been came around, it. Came around last night and picked it up. So she'll be fit and healthy. running down the road the other day, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this, Sandy Morrison. Nice. Yeah, I was talking to her. Regular, regular extreme endurance advantages. Clinically pl- proven to reduce lactic acid by 15%. Speeds recovery improves a- uh, aerobic threshold by double digits. Key one is benefits within 72 hours. Reduces your muscle soreness and certified drug free. So you won't be doing a Marina Maria Sharapova. No. Uh, and it's only 46 bucks. It's a mistake, John. 
it was a mistake. I have millions of dollars and nobody can tell me what to take. Yeah. Uh, it's only 46 bucks, so it's a bargain for giving you a nice performance gain both in your training and come race day. So check it out, xendurance.com. Okay, John, we're going to have another interview out. We've got Paul Paul Newsom with an E. Oh, he's got an E. Yes. Well, you spelled it here without an E. Maybe I'm it's trying a, to you're protesting. change it. <laughs> yeah. yep. uh, Paul Newsom from Swim Smooth. We've had him on the show before. He's a very insightful man. John spoke to him for about 45 minutes. So here we go right now. Okay, guys, we've got uh, Paul Newsom back on the show from Swim Smooth. He still has that E on the end of his name, but one day we'll, uh, we'll bash it off. Uh, he's our <laughs> swim expert. And guys, if you want to hear other interviews we've done with Paul I think this is our fourth time we've had him on so just go on to imtalk.me and do a search for Paul Newsom with an E and it'll come up um, and there's some other really good content but what we're going to focus on today a bit more is sort of swim technology and swim watches and and how you can get the most out of them because I think for a lot of people um, you know in the, in the good old days they used to get their heart rate monitor and they'd get it and they'd look at their heart rates and go well that's interesting but not really know what it means and then that sort of morphed on to um, power meters and people sort of initially got them didn't have a clue what they they meant and slowly the markets become educated and I, th- I still think with the, the swimming side of things we've we've got a lot of features there but a lot of us don't have a clue how to use them so we're going to try to unravel some of that with Paul on the show today so welcome back to the show Paul thanks very much John great to be here with you again today cool so what are the sort of choices out there because I think you know Garmin's you know arguably the market leader out there in terms of multi-sport watches in terms of uh, you know having something that works across all three disciplines but and they do you know, obviously have a swim function there for the guys who've got the 910 or the 920 but mm. what are the sort of choices out there when it comes to you know measuring what you're doing uh, swimming Absolutely. Well, I'm very much a yeah, tech geek myself, so I have I have most of these watches and stuff. To uh, you know, I've tested them all and uh, gone through various bits and pieces. And I think one of the first things to sort of probably break down is the idea that um, you know having a heart rate monitor on the bike or on the uh, on the run or equally a power meter. You know, I've just been out for my for a bike ride and just been following my power and stuff. It's a it's a very visual way to sort of see what you're putting in and uh, you know what numbers are, p- are popping out. But obviously, when you're swimming, it's very very difficult to achieve that. And many of these watches are you know they're fantastic but they're fantastic more in a retrospective sort of a way so you'll do the session then you'll go home download the data and yeah you can sort of see I guess your splits that you've been doing along the way but you don't really get the same sort of maybe the same sort of visual awareness that maybe a power meter on the bike or a heart rate monitor or a Garmin GPS on the run would maybe give you so it's a little bit harder I guess in swimming to actually make uh, real-time changes. Um, I will talk a, a little bit about some gadgets that you can use to make real-time changes within your swimming, which um, often cost a lot less than uh, than some of the manufacturers' watches out there on the market. So, you know, that's uh, that's probably a, a probably a good place to start is just to sort of recognise that you know some watches give you that retrospective um, analysis, and some of them will actually give you real-time live feedback as you're going along, and it's it's that stuff which can be very very powerful, I believe. Nice. So, yeah. So outside of Garmin, what have, what have we sort of got out there? Yeah. So I mean, Garmin do the. I've still got the three ten. I love the three ten. Actually, I saw it on sale for fifty percent off the other day, <laughs> like less than two hundred bucks in a in a shop down in Margaret River, and I was like, wow, that's a pretty good deal. Um, you know, that's a that's a great little gadget for just popping underneath your hat for open water swimming, especially to track how far you've swum and uh, what speed you've averaged, etc. And the nice thing about all of the Garmin's, they they have a function like an auto lap feature, which for anyone doing longer swims in the open water, you can um, you could maybe set. I I 
typically set mine to buzz at me every 500 meters. So I know when I've clicked off 500 meters. So a little bit like swimming in a massive swimming pool, you know, 10 times the length of a, an Olympic size swimming pool. I just know when I've done that 500 meters and it's a nice mm-hmm. psychological check mark in my, uh, in my head, basically. Uh, then of course came the 910 and then now the 920 and the 920 is a beautiful watch. Um, one of the things I, you know, I, this is the purest in me. I personally don't like wearing a, a swimming watch on my wrist. Um, I'm quite happy to wear them in the open water underneath my swimming cap. But, you know, we've got a, we've got a blog called feelforthewater.com. And, you know, one of the premises of Feel for the Water is obviously to try to actually feel the way you're actually cutting through the water. And sometimes some of the really big watches, the big chunky watches, can disturb the flow of the water over the back of the hand and the wrist, etc. So I know it sounds a little bit pedantic, but if you speak to any, you know, um, elite swimmer or, or somebody who's maybe had a swim, background they uh, they often tell you this exactly the same thing they don't like to wear a watch they just find it disrupts the um, the feeling of their stroke a little bit uh, i'm to such an extent i can't even wear my wear my wedding ring when i swim much to my <laughs> wife's disdain she really gets just <laughs> upset with me for not wearing my wedding ring all the time but uh, yeah there we go um so yeah the garments the garments are very good uh finise do a uh, a watch as well which they brought out uh, a couple of years ago so finise are the makers of the tempo trainer and also a lot of the uh, training cool training gear that's out on the market right right now they work in a similar sort of manner albeit it doesn't have an inbuilt gps like the garmin so as an all-rounder the garmin really can't be beaten i've just picked up the the garmin vivo active which is a very nice looking simple watch um it's a much smaller watch than the 910 and the 920 and even the 310 and you know dare i say you know of all the watches i've worn it's probably the most comfortable to wear in the water Mm. um there's a company called Poolmate, make a uh, swimmer vape watch um which does a similar sort of thing initially it was just a lap counter but now it's a little bit more complex than that, and you can you know monitor how many strokes you're doing per length, and uh, it'll calculate from that and the speed that you're swimming at, the, the stroke rate that you're swimming at, etc. Um, there's a, a company in Italy who just sent me over some uh, their, their new gadget, which is quite a cool concept, especially for the people like myself who are a little bit pedantic about where they wear these things. It's a thing called the Swim Metrics, and it's a um, it's a little uh, gadget that you pop on underneath, either underneath your swimming cap or actually attaches to your goggle straps and actually sits behind the back of the head. So this thing has accelerometers in it which actually measure um, and can determine your stroke rate, even what type of stroke you're doing. And again, gives you that analysis um, when you download it at the end. There is an option with that where you can actually plug it into a, a pair of heads, like a, an earphone, and it will actually give you the feedback as you turn, even to the extent of how long your tumble turn took you to actually turn off and push off the wall, etc. So it can get quite, you know, quite complex and uh, quite geeky. Um, there's a very recent product on the market, I haven't tested it yet, but it sounds quite interesting, called the SwimBot. And that's supposed to not only determine your swimming metrics, but also to give you some subjective feedback on what your stroke might be doing uh, based on you know, whether or not it's detecting that you're pushing down on the water or sweeping across underneath the body, etc. So I, I can't really comment on that one yet because I haven't tested it, but I'd love to test that and uh, put, it its, uh, put it through its paces. I think, you know, the, one of the, from a, purely from a coaching perspective, though, one of the things which... Um, can be a little bit irksome, let's say, uh, within a squad session, is when swimmers will come down with their watches, you know, and they want to monitor and measure the session and uh, get all the metrics, especially if they're a little bit geeky, um, which is nothing wrong with that. Uh, but, uh, they can spend, you know, several minutes, four or five minutes actually just working out how the watch even works to press start and stop. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I find it detracting sometimes from the, from the session. Not really for me, you know, I don't mind really 
you know, if the swimmer's doing that, but, you know, let's say, for example, I end up missing a couple of hundred meters every session, then um, just because of fiddling around with the watch, then you could argue the, the benefits of it there. But that's, again, that's just me being a little bit pedantic, just in the, in the real-time application of using these things. Um, you know, I, I mentioned there about real-time feedback, and I really don't think you can actually be, even to this day, uh, at this point in time, the Finney's Tempo Trainer. Now, uh, this is not a watch um, which uh, records your data. You can't download it or anything like that. But, you know, you mentioned there about power meters and how they came along and changed the market. And I have to really give a, a massive shout out to, uh, to Hunter Allen and Andy Coggan with their, um, their book, Training for Power. Um, when I was, I've been in 2006. I'd been doing triathlon at that point for nearly 20 years, and I'd raced at a reasonably high level on the British team, uh, on the world class team. And up until 2006, uh, this is when I'd sort of been retired, if you like, from triathlon for about five years. I'd never really utilised a power meter before, even though they were available prior to 2006. I read uh, Hans Allen's book, and it just totally changed my opinion. Well, not opinion, I guess, but totally changed my viewpoint on how effective training can, you know, how, how you can really make your training very, very smart. Mm-hmm. And obviously they had this concept of uh, FTP, functional threshold power. And one of the things that really excited me about that was I was thinking, well, surely what they're talking about in this book can be applied in some respect to, to swimming. And, you know, nothing at that point and, uh, had, really been, had really been delivered for swimming. And um, I was lucky to go and meet Hunter Allen over in, uh, over in Colorado at the start of 2006, on a, um, I think it's a USA Triathlon Congress. It was a, it was, funny enough, it was actually a, a congress about technology in triathlon. And mm-hmm. um, you know, at that point, they were talking about you know nothing's really there for swimming at this point. But um, the whole concept of FTP, I thought, well, surely there's got to be something out there for swimming that we can that we can utilize. So we're we're frequently on the internet credited for having devised. Uh, critical swim speed, which is known as CSS training, but really that that test, just to sort of put the record straight, that test has been around since the early 90s, uh, and it's not something which we've devised, but it's something that we've wholly embraced over the last 10 years based on you know the readings with uh, with Hunter Allen and his book on training with power. So the idea, the premise behind CSS training is to identify a swimmer's threshold pace, and if you can identify that threshold pace using a test uh, with a 400-meter time trial and a 200-meter time trial. The 400 looks at how aerobically efficient somebody is, and the 200 a little bit more anaerobically. So somebody who's got very little drop-off between their 200 and 400 time trials tends to swim quite well over 1,500 meters or longer distances. They're what we call more of the diesel engine. But somebody tends to drop off quite a bit, so they've got a really fast 200, but they don't perform too well over 400, even though the two numbers when added together might be faster than the other swimmer I've just mentioned. You know, if somebody's dropping off massively between 200 and 400, the prediction is that they'd obviously slow down significantly over 1,500 meters as well. So once you've determined that number, the nice thing about these Finney's tempo trainers is that you can then input that target pace into a little beeper that just sits underneath your swimming cap. And let's say, for example, your, your target threshold pace was 140 per 100. That works out at 25 seconds per 25. You can literally press go on the beeper and then make sure you just start to swim and just try and turn or go through the 25-meter mark every time the little beeper get, goes at you. Now, Garmin just recently have actually done like a lap feature on theirs as well where you can actually set those um, increments and it'll give you a buzz every 
every uh, 25 seconds or 26 seconds, etc. But the slight detriment there is that it's only whole second uh, differences. So you either plug in 140 per 100 or 144 per 100 or 136, and that's quite a range, mm. whereas the tempo trainer is accurate to 1/100th of a second. So the thing with this, uh, this little gadget is, A, it's a lot cheaper. You're talking about a you know, maximum of 60 uh, Australian dollars, maybe about 30 pounds in the UK for one of these gadgets and you know it doesn't look much you can't download it you, it doesn't sing to you it doesn't make you cup of tea it doesn't send you an SMS message or anything like that but I, I really do still believe that these gadgets are absolutely fantastic because they're very quick and easy to set up you don't spend all your day wasting you know wasting your day setting it up and it actually gives you that real time feedback that I was mentioning beforehand which I think is a very powerful thing let's say for example you go home and you've, you've got the best um, um, swim metrics watch whatever that might determine to be and you download it it's only beneficial for you the next time you go for your training session mm-hmm. whereas if you're actually utilizing it uh, in real time and the beepers you know you're slipping behind the beeper you've either got a chance to speed up if you can or equally it'll deter it'll show you that you know you obviously went off a bit too fast you've blown up you've slowed down etc so within our um, within our coaching system, which we put out in December 2014, we knew that a lot of people have these tempo trainers, but potentially didn't know how to maximize and use them to the best of their ability. So all of our training plans that actually feature within the coaching system um, have a little pop-up where it will tell you exactly what, number, what mode to put it in. There's three modes on the tempo trainer and equally what time to actually put in there. And um, by doing that on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis sort of thing, then swimmers can make uh, some really good sound improvements. And you know, just like in cycling and running, ultimately what determines how fast uh, you know, your, your ultimate level of ability is, um, is what that threshold pace um, ultimately is. Um, if you can make that a little bit faster, then of course you'll uh, you'll swim faster on the day. I'm going to go and buy one of those for the guy that leads out our lane at the public pool. Uh, get him, get him in line. <laughs> so you got somebody on the lane, you say? Who yeah, someone in the lane, and he he sometimes goes out a little bit too quick, and then yeah, then fades yeah. as the session goes on. So uh, yeah. if I can just get him to lock on to the correct pace, we'll be, we'll be away. Totally, totally. And you know what? With the with the tempo trainers, when within our squad, we'll have um, let's say we have forty people turn up for a session. We'll have uh, four lanes. Um, Four lanes, let's say four lanes, ten people per lane. We'll end up having two groups um, within each of those lanes. We'll have a, um, a leader uh, with the tempo trainer in each of the two groups, so um, to actually monitor and keep good pace. Yeah. So it takes a little bit of the ego out of the training session as well. And from a coaching perspective, it's it's great because I can literally say, okay, this is your target today, group one, for example. This is the time that we're going to try and hold. All I literally need to do at the end of each interval is say, did you hit the beeper or not? And the swimmer responds, yeah, it's two seconds behind. I don't have to carry around eight different stopwatches. I don't have to fumble around with this and take my eye off what they're doing with their stroke technique, etc. The tempo trainer really controls that. And, you know, for the, for the price of eight tempo trainers, probably equivalent of buying, you know, one of the, one of the fancy swim watches. But uh, that's not to say these swim watches aren't, complete, you know, I'm hoping your, your listeners aren't sort of getting the impression that, oh, he doesn't really like these swim watches. I, I do see merit in them, uh, for sure. Um, it's just that... Uh, you know, with with what is out, what else is out there on the market? Just and just purely from experience, having utilised them all, and um, you know, and from a purely from a practical perspective, I still find the tempo trainer trumps everything at this point in time. Yeah, 
So yes. when it comes to, to the other watches, though, you know, mm. there is quite a few metrics and stuff on there. And absolutely. absolutely. You've said it's sort of a retrospective thing. We go back and look mm. at it afterwards. But, you know, if, if we use a power example, I remember, you know, powering up my Garmin one day and, and resetting all the fields on my on my bike computer. And the number of things you can put in there is just outrageous, oh, um, of which 90% are, are not beneficial or not not required for your for your average Joe blogs. So what sort of metrics do we typically get from these various different watches? Um, and maybe explain what they are and what they mean and, and what we can potentially do about them retrospectively. Sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, uh, obviously I mentioned beforehand that they do do it retrospectively, but on a session, actually during the session, for a lot of people, just even just counting the number oh, of watches that you've done, you know, so it's a major thing. So if you've got a longer swim set, and the coach says, okay, we're going to do 1,000 meters, you know, a lot of people pop their head up after 800 or 900 saying, I'm finished, you know, <laughs> whereas the, uh, the watch obviously will, uh, will let you know exactly how far you've, uh, you've gone. There is, uh, the accuracy of that is getting a lot better. Um, but, you know, when we're, again, when we're talking about metrics, that accuracy is very, very important because if you're going to determine things like um, the training stress score, uh, for your listeners who know a lot about uh, training peaks, et cetera, then obviously it does require very accurate inputs um, with respect to the actual distance you've covered. So if the watch is under reading by 50 metres or 100 metres, then that's going to affect those things a little bit as well. So just purely from a counting perspective, that's very, very good. Um, the watches all obviously determine what speed you're averaging. Uh, one, of the, one of the guys in my squad sends me an Excel spreadsheet after every training session, uh, bless his soul, and uh, says, look, look at me, look at how, you know, you talk about pacing and how important it is. Look at this, I was within 0.5 of a second for this entire 1,200-metre swim. So that, you know, you know, that sort of stuff is really, really nice to see as well as the actual speed. Because ultimately, you know, most of I'm sure most of your listeners will be out there trying to become more efficient and ultimately faster with their swimming as well. And that leads me on to the next point: the um, um, the measurement or metric SWOLF, which is um, a term which is banded around quite uh, quite a lot. Is this idea that if the watch can calculate how many strokes you're doing per length? And obviously, you input what the length of the pool is, and uh, and it can determine how long it took you to complete a length. There is a metric which has been around in swimming circles for many, many years, which um, suggests that if you add those two numbers together, so let's take some easy numbers. Let's say somebody swims a length in 50 seconds. This is in a 50-meter pool, um, and they take 50 strokes, then their SWOLF score is 100. And historically, the idea has been that to become more efficient, you try to get that number down. You can either get it down by taking fewer strokes and or taking less time to complete the length. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where I have a slight um, disagreement, though, with, the, with this particular metric. Um, for example, I was working on Monday with a, uh, a gentleman, very good professional traffic, called Nick Baldwin. Uh, Nick's someone who's been, uh, he's from the Seychelles and been training over here in Perthless for about the last 18 months, two years. And, um, you know, he's a fantastic athlete, but swimming, it's fair to say, is his, um, you know, it's his bit of his bugbear, it's his Achilles heel, the thing that he's trying to get better, uh, albeit he has swum a 49-minute <laughs> Ironman swim, so he's not too shabby, let's just say. Um, so I took him for this session uh, the other day, and we determined that his uh, his natural stroke rate was uh, 68, um, 68 strokes uh, per minute, and he was um, completing each length in around about 44 seconds. 
Um, obviously, we're looking there at stroke rate, but the idea would be that if you just lower the stroke rate and effectively increase the uh, increase the stroke length, then those two numbers added together, uh, in Nick's case, would give you a, a number of 112. During the session, though, we identified that this uh, that Nick was actually breathing too late. And just by getting to breathe earlier, not by necessarily saying turn your arms over quicker or something like that, he was able to lift his stroke rate up to 76. So effectively, you could say, well, maybe he's shortening his stroke. But he ended up swimming each 100 meters eight seconds faster by quickening the stroke rates. But the thing is, his swallow score, if you're using stroke rate and time, add those two together, the number would actually be higher in that particular scenario. So, it, you know, obviously a little bit more scientific research other than just simply a one-to-one session with Nick would be uh, need to be done. We'd need to be counting how many strokes per length because that's what Swall score is normally counting. Um, but even if we look at, uh, I've just got some metrics here in front of me. Um, we all obviously all know, uh, especially down here in the Southern Hemisphere, Grant Hackett. Uh, Grant Hackett was making a comeback for, uh, for, for the Rio Games, which is, uh, which is fantastic. His stroke count, so this is the number of strokes he would take in a 50-meter pool, would be around about 32 strokes per 50 meters and done at a stroke rate of 76 strokes per minute. Uh, if you add those two numbers together, that gives you a, that gives you a score there of 108, if my maths are correct. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas David Davies racing in the same race, so this was Olympic bronze medalist in the 1500 behind Grant Hackett, who then went on to win an Olympic silver medal in the 10K in, uh, in Beijing. His stroke count would be 42 strokes per 50 metres with a stroke rate of 98 so if you add those two numbers together, we get 140 versus you know 108. Mm-hmm. Now, if you worked out the efficiency difference, so purely the percentage difference there, you know you would say that David Davies is significantly less efficient than uh, than Grant Hackett if you are purely using those two numbers as the Swall score indicates you should. Uh, now, for somebody to only finish a fraction behind Grant Hackett and then to go on to win an Olympic silver medal. I don't think you can say he's significantly less efficient than what Grant Hackett was. He just has a different makeup within his stroke. And also on that train of thought as well, it used to be said that the the, uh, the differentiator between an elite swimmer uh, to basically cut the wheat from the chaff is anybody who can swim under 40 strokes per 50 is supposedly you know elite. And yet you've got David Davies there, Britain's best ever male um, distance freestyler, swimming 42 strokes per 50 mm-hmm. meters. Um, even if you look at somebody like Alastair Brownlee, Alastair Brownlee also in excess of 40 strokes per 50 meters, but again with this very, very high stroke rate at 90. So I personally, you know, it's a, it's a good measure, you know, it's something to look at. And, you know, if you try to reduce that down, you can have a little bit of fun with it, etc. But most people, I guess, pay attention to those 12 scores when they're maybe only doing 50 meters at a time. Uh, and maybe not looking at so much over over a longer swim, but you know that again. That's just the that's just the pedantic part of me, just sort of saying, well, you know, these numbers are interesting. It's certainly Swalf is something that's been banded around for many years now. Um, you know, and then obviously the, these manufacturers have picked up this metric and thought, okay, that's quite a nice way to display it. But is it a true measure of swimming efficiency? I would argue that it's not, um, just based on some of the stuff that we've looked at there, of course. Mm. 
In terms of the stroke rate and, and the accuracy of the watches, you know, w- w- when we're talking running and cycling, it's mm. pretty easy for us to often see deterioration in, uh, in cadence in both yep. those two sports, say in an Ironman race, you know, as people get tired, it starts to drift down. Um, yes. How effect- effective a, a, a metrics and a tool is, is looking at that stroke rate? Say you're at the pool and you're doing, you know, um, eight by 400s. Uh, do you find that a, a, an a, a useful measure to, to keep people on track? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, a consistency of stroke, whether it be whether you be using stroke length or stroke rate as you as you as you constant, if you like, is very very important. Um, when I race uh, marathon swimming in the open water, of course, we have no recollection, uh, no um, reference, I should say, sorry, of uh, how long my stroke is in the open water. All we can monitor is the stroke rate and the consistency of it. So somebody on the what on the uh, boat will actually be sat there with a stopwatch and uh, and taking my stroke rates as I'm going and we'll be looking for anything like a, a 5% drop off or more in stroke rate from what I'm starting out at either indicates I've set off too quick or I'm starting to actually really de- deteriorate as I'm as I'm going along so that monitoring that consistency yeah absolutely that's that can be a, a very very good thing to uh, to look for um it's um you know utilizing the obviously the the, the it's probably I was going to say it's probably worthwhile highlighting the fact that I've been reading out some numbers there for you know Grant Hackett 76 strokes per minute and David Davies 98 strokes per minute. That's counting right arm as one, left arm as two, right arm as three, left arm as mm. four. Many of the watches will actually count a whole stroke cycle. So David Davies stroke rate there would be 49 strokes per minute if using yeah. one of these watches as opposed to 98. And that can be a little bit confusing. You know, we we're very lucky to spend some time with David Davies in the UK a couple of years ago and had him up on their stage at the 220 Triathlon Awards. And I was talking about this and I've been blabbing on about how, you know, many of these elite swimmers have these stroke rates in excess of 90 or 80, 90 strokes per minute. And David Davies starts, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And he goes, however, um, you know, my stroke rate was 49. And everyone was like, ah, oh, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but what he, obviously, what he's met talking about is a complete stroke cycle. The, the interesting uh, discrepancy there, though, is that when people count strokes per length, they'll typically count right as one, left as two, right as three, left as four, etc. which is the whole reason why when we stipulate stroke rate, we refer to it as per stroke as opposed to per stroke cycle. Um, again, the purists out there who monitor cadence on the bike and run know that would be every time the right foot comes around uh, on either the running or the or the biking. So there is a little bit of discrepancy there. So when you're looking at these numbers or even listening to them, etc., just be mindful of the fact that uh, when I'm talking about stroke rate, I'm talking left is one, right is two, uh, as opposed to a complete stroke cycle there as well. So, uh, but yeah, any any sort of measurement in terms of uh, you know uh, deterioration in the consistency of the stroke rate. Um, over the course of uh, over a certain period, yeah, that's going to be that's going to give great feedback um, as you go. Cool. Again, again, the tempo trainer was initially designed uh, in mode three to actually uh, you can actually plug in. So if you were David Davies, you might say, right, I'm going to plug in 98 strokes per minute, and the bit the thing will just go beep 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 beep, beep uh, 98 strokes per minute until you tell it to turn off, and uh, you could actually then just use it to actually uh, monitor the cadence of the arms as opposed to uh, the time per 25 or per 50, etc. 
So obviously with these uh, all these different gadgets, you know, you can recall quite a bit of the information on the, mm. the watch user face itself. Um, what about in terms of actually analysing things in slightly more detail? Are you, uh, the, is the best platform using training training peaks or WKO or Finis got things? You know, where's the best place to go and actually look at your data? Um, I think most of the manufacturers actually um, sell some degree of software with them uh, so you can actually analyze the data and look at it. Um, you know, there's a, I'm just trying to think of a uh, name now, I think it's swim.com, have a, uh, a platform where you can actually upload the data from any of these watches and look at the, look at the stats as you're going along. So that's quite a nice way of doing it. Uh, I would imagine many of your listeners uh, utilize Training Peaks. I use Training Peaks. I think it's a fantastic piece of software and it's improving all the time. Uh, so it's a great way to actually then look at um, you know the you know, lap by light, uh, lap by lap time that you've done. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned that I was discussing in 2006 with Hunter Allen was this idea that um, training stress score, um, which again I'm sure is something which all your listeners are aware of, um, is just something which uh, at that point in time was still in its fairly relative in infancy. Um, the Training Peaks guys had developed um, the performance manager chart to allow you to actually monitor the effect of each training session. So obviously to get fitter, you have to train, but obviously the more you train, the more tired you get. So managing those two factors, the, um, the fatigue and the, uh, and the increase in the, uh, in the fitness gives you an indication of, of what, what your form might be on a day-to-day -day basis. To work that out, any given training session has to be allocated a training stress score. So 100 points would be the equivalent of going out and doing a 40K, uh, sorry, an hour time trial at your maximum on the bike, for example, which is exactly what I've just done this, this morning myself. And it's a really good way to then measure improvement um, on a week-by-week week basis. The thing with uh, swimming, though, up until very recently, training stress score for swimming has been a little bit harder to monitor and measure until these watches have come on the market. Um, again, the accuracy of the watch is absolutely imperative. Um, during a given training session, you might end up doing a warm-up which might feature some drills. So you might pop the fins on, you might use the pull and paddles. And the question then becomes on, well, how you might, it might be, uh, working out the training stress score based on the speed you're swimming per length but if you're one of these people who can do uh, 100 meters pull one paddles 20 seconds per 100 quicker than you do normally how is that going to affect the uh, uh, 20 seconds quicker than normally and feel easier i should say as well mm. how is that going to affect the training stress score that uh, that it delivers into training peaks for example but you know it's like with anything you know i think some knowledge is better than no knowledge at all and uh and, you know certainly if you've been using training peaks for years now and only really monitoring your biking and your running uh then adding in the training stress score of the swimming as well can be quite a, a unique uh, quite a, a nice thing to add in there as well of mm. course the energy systems and you know the way the, the body works of course you know, you could argue that you might be able to back up a really hard bike session with a quite a solid swim session because obviously you're utilizing your upper body versus the lower body. Um, there's going to be some fatigue carryover, of course, as well. But that's one of those things which you know, again, the guys from Training Peaks putting out all this information with training stress score is really quite an exciting thing because it gives you know it gives the layman an easy number to work with as an indication of, wow, okay, that training session there today really was quite hard. That's why I'm feeling terrible today, you know, the yeah. following day um, and sort of expect the fact that, okay, well, I need to take an easy day now and then I'll ramp it up the following day and, and so on and so forth. So I love, personally, I love training peaks, but uh, all the other, um, all the other products do come, uh, typically do come with their own software. So you can at least look at the basics 
of what you were doing during the uh, during the session. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the guy who sent me this Excel spreadsheet. I think what he does, he's using a one of the Garmin swim watches, uh, specific swim watches. And I think what he does is he just takes the data from. He's obviously able to export it into Excel, and then he builds up his own fancy spreadsheets and graphs and charts and stuff like that. So, you know, it, you know, if you're one of those geeky people who like Excel, like me, I absolutely love it. Uh, you can get quite creative with all that. And I, th- I think the, the, the bigger factor is, though, is if you're spending an hour analyzing a single training session that only took an hour, you could argue the fact that, well, maybe you're better off being, spending that other hour actually in the pool as opposed to you know, in, analyze it to the nth degree. But, uh, you know, we're all, we're all quite geeky when it comes to this sort of stuff, I would imagine, and um, it's, quite, it's quite nice to sort of see what your, what your metrics are. And, of, of course, there's been an absolute explosion in the number of people wearing things like uh, fitness trackers or, uh, you know, monitor how many calories you burn per day just from walking around etc so people are genuinely generally getting into this type of thing and, and like to know what they're putting in uh, you know what, what sort of results they're likely to get from it for those geeky guys or non-geeky guys and girls out there though i can tell you these watches the the, the number one thing for me is a you can count your lengths correctly which is Absolutely. fantastic yeah. and secondly for the people that are still pretty new to the sport is just taking your times for 400s or something or 200s or 1,000 or whatever and actually having a clue about what happens to your swim speed as you go through a session. A lot of people, you know, you go and ask them, what can you swim a 400 in? And they don't have a clue. So I think uh, as as step one, just literally actually using the watch as a a stopwatch in the counter and then take that next step once you're on top of all that stuff. Yeah, totally. You know, and the prices are coming down quite nice. I picked up this Garmin Vivo Active for about two hundred uh, Australian dollars, and I've been super happy with it. It's quite a nice little watch to wear. It looks cool, and and these sort of things. And you know, I, I remember in the early days, a lot of these watches, you know, that you get a, maybe a day's battery use out of them if you're lucky. Um, I was, again, I, I love Apple products, but I was very disappointed when the Apple pro, Apple Watch came out because obviously it only gives you about an hour's uh, sorry a day's worth of uh, battery usage. Whereas something like this Vivo Active, I can get about ten days use out of it, and uh, you know that's a quite a nice function to be able to just sort of keep it on your on your wrist and have access to that information if you want it. But uh, yeah. Now a lot of um, the listeners, you know, a lot of triathletes around the world don't aren't blessed with the same situation that you have in in Perth and, and other Australians. And you know, there's not swim squads everywhere, and a lot of people are swimming by themselves. You know, there's lots of places they can get swim programs from, or they have their own personal coaches. Um, but you guys have sort of got a bit of a swim um, coaching system there in terms of actually, you know, helping people take that next step. You know, it's one thing having a program, but then actually trying to do some some self analysis and stuff like that and you guys have come up with a bit of a system so tell us tell us a bit more about that well we released in december 2014 and literally tomorrow we get version two back from the uh, developers which we've been working on for for close to 12 months so since release of version one um we got some very good feedback but we also got some really constructive feedback in how we could actually improve it and one of the things that funny enough on this call here one of the things that people were asking for was to be able to analyze and get a few more waypointers to actually sort of guide them through so the, the concept behind the system um and it's we're actually giving it a bit of a an overhaul both in terms of look and feel we're actually going to be calling it the swim smooth guru because a little 
funky dude pops up and sort of guides you through the system and holds your hand a little bit and tells you, okay, you know, your CSS session, uh, CSS result was here. We need to then do this and we need to now do these four sessions in a row and mm-hmm. you're training up for an Ironman and do this. The, the version one had that facility, but it was just sort of a bit too buried in there. And it's really, version one's really acting as a library, if you like. So the, the premise behind the system is that you can, um, it's basically split into three parts, first and foremost. One section is devoted purely to you improving your technique. And the way we do that is through self-analysis by identifying what your swim type is. So we've identified six different types of swimmer. The Arnie, somebody who's struggling, in the water, struggling fighting the water with low sinking legs. The Bambino, somebody who's very nervous and anxious in the water, very new to swimming and often finds the whole thing very much a struggle. The Kicktastic, who tends to have a very, very strong, powerful leg kick but not such a great pull. The Overglider, um, which we've been, you know, spent the last half an hour talking about swim metrics and stuff. So if you're listening then, writing all these notes down and thinking, oh, that would be a great graph to do in Excel and da-da-da, <laughs> chances are you might be what we call an Overglider. So somebody just sort of overthinks and overprocesses things a little bit too much and maybe has devoted a bit, a bit too much time to lengthening out the stroke without due respect to the uh, the rate the rating of the stroke. Um, our fifth swim type is what we call the swinger. So most of the world's best triathletes and open water swimmers. I mentioned Alistair Brownlee and David Davies having these quite high swall scores, but you know being the best in the world um, compared to the smooths of the world, the Grant Hackett's, the Ian Thorpe's, etc. They have longer strokes, but with a slower stroke rate. That's really the, the, the defining difference between the smooths and the uh, and the swingers there. So with that uh, in mind, we give you a little questionnaire that you can fill out, or your coach, or somebody might have suggested, oh yeah, you're definitely somebody who kicks very, very hard, and you might know yourself that you're not very good with pool boy, for example. Uh, you might then select the kick-tastic profile, and we'll then guide you through how to actually correct your stroke and give you some training sessions to develop that. Um, within the training section, because obviously improving your swimming is not just about improving your stroke. A lot of people believe it is, but mm. we're, um, we've talked all you know the last half an hour about swim metrics. Of course, one of the major things is that it's all very well having a pretty stroke, but if that pretty stroke is slow, then it's not going to be as effective as it possibly could be. So due diligence is still required in terms of the type of training you're doing. We've got over 300 training sessions in the, in the, um, in the web app or the coaching system now called The Guru, and um, basically they're broken down, so you can either select a, you might be doing a, an Ironman coming up in 20 weeks' time, so you can select the Ironman program, or you might think to yourself, oh, I just need a bit of guidance on some of those red mist endurance sessions that, that uh, Swim Smooth talk about, and we've got 75 of those that you can choose from uh, to really uh, really crank your arms and uh, and give you a really solid endurance session, or you can pick from some, some pure technique sessions as well. So we have a, a whole session library uh, for training sessions and then of course the other thing is it's all very well and good being able to swim well in the pool but how well do you transfer your skills across to the open water you know Alistair Brownlee might not look super pretty but he is devastatingly effective of course in the open water and um, you know uh, we talked a lot there about how to draft better how to sight better we've got over uh, I believe it's over 30 hours of HD video footage broken down into clips short snippets and sections of five minutes um, which you can access on your iPhone your iPad your laptop computer so it's not a native app in the fact that it sits on the on the iPhone but it very much works and functions like that the benefit being that you can view it anywhere on a big computer screen or on your phone anywhere you've got access to the internet basically so version two 
though, we talked, you know, we talked at the start of this conversation about the idea that um, real-time versus retrospective analysis can be quite powerful. One of the things we've identified, and this is true for biking and running as well, so something might be you, your listeners might be interested in to just sort of either just sort of ponder the question, is that if you're encouraged to do a time trial, let's say every four to six weeks then during that four to six weeks, the idea is that you do this time trial and you ascertain your FTP on the bike, your CSS pace in the swim, your functional threshold pace for your running. If you're testing four to six weeks' time, if you're somebody who's already on quite a steep improvement curve, it could be that you end up spending the last two or three weeks essentially under training because you might have improved beyond the point which your your levels are set at. Mm. So one of the functions that we built into version two, which is something I'm really excited about, is this thing called a CSS tweaker. So at the end of each session, the end of each key session, the little swim smooth guru dude pops up and says, you know, how did that session go for you? Did you hit all your target times? I mean, obviously you're thinking in your head yes or no. But then there's also a degree of how confident you are that next, the next session you can uh, increase your CSS pace and, uh, and seek and charge after some, uh, some quicker paces. So, for example, if you had an amazing session, and you hit all your times and you thought that didn't even feel hard, you might hit the big hero button and it'll take your time, it'll calibrate the times for the next session. So on a session-by-session basis, you get this sort of very much a um, reactive way of actually training whereby you're making improvements hopefully on a session-by-session basis as opposed to changing your target zones every four to six weeks or even longer if, you, if you're mm-hmm. one of those people who don't like testing. So, you know, one of, the, one of the discrepancies with both FTP testing on the bike, of course, most of your listeners, if you read the Training with Power book, you'll know that the best way to test it is with a 60-minute uh, time trial on the bike. The idea of doing that, though, can be hell for a lot of people who don't like to test with a, such a hard thing. So you might do a 20-minute time trial, and you might times that uh, by 95%, and that gives you an indication of what you might do for 60 minutes. Uh, similarly, with uh, CSS testing, you know, the truest way to actually measure this uh, if we're determining threshold pace to be what you'd be able to maintain for about 1,500 metres, the truest way to test it is to do a 1,500-metre time trial. Not many people like doing a 1,500-metre time trial. The nice thing about doing the CSS test, as it was determined back in the early 90s, is that it looks at this drop-off between 400 and 200 so you can actually get some really good data uh, from that drop-off because we can actually sort of determine whether or not you're a diesel engine, so somebody who can hold really good pace or somebody who's got a really high anaerobic component to their fitness. Uh, maybe you've come from like a, a power sport like uh, rugby, football or something like that. And, um, you know, you've got the ability to get good at endurance, but at that point, in, at this point in time, your physiology hasn't been trained for that. So by looking at that drop off, we can get a little bit more sort of, um, we can be a little bit more interrogative with the, with what plans we devise for you, et cetera, mm. um, which is really quite, uh, quite useful. But what we get all the time, we've got, um, I think we've got now 120,000 people on our Friday weekly blog at feelforthewater.com. Yeah, we'll put something out about CSS testing or CSS training, and we'll get a flurry of emails back saying this thing doesn't work. You know, John's time is is you know he's worked out at one thirty six per hundred, but I'm faster than him over in the hundred meter intervals in the squad. And da 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 da. The the thing is that the test is correct, but it relies upon a good pacing on the four hundred. So a lot of people go off way too quick on the first hundred meters of the four hundred. So our little uh, swim smooth guru actually asks you to input the first hundred meter pace, so you can look at the rate of drop off, yeah. and that can be absolutely massive. And that has a massive impact then on the CSS result that calculates at the end. So rather than yeah, you know, we get this flurry of emails back, and somebody says, "Oh, I think I think I blew up on the four hundred. Shall I do the CSS?" 
ASS test again. And we'll, you know, in the past, we might have said, yes, go and do it again. And then they're not confident that that test result was great. And they do it again and again. And all, all, all the while, four or five training sessions have, have gone by and they've missed out on doing some real solid training because the test, 400 and 200, is obviously a lot easier than a 200, uh, 2K um, CSS session. So uh, with the CSS tweaker, the nice thing about this is even if you're not totally confident about the result that you do on your 400 and your 200, just know that that's a starting point. And then each session on a session-by-session session basis, you can tweak it until it gets to that point where you can very, very accurately gauge your improvement over time. We can graph this on a, on a chart, and every session that we've now got in there uh, calculates your training stress score. So even if you're not using one of these uh, fancy watches, because of the input that we know, you know exactly how much uh, training stress uh, how many points uh, from the training stress score um, a 2K threshold set would give you, we can actually say, okay, this session is worth 55 points, for example. You press complete, and then it adds it to your impulse uh, fitness model, which you can then, obviously, if you're using Training Peaks, you can take that number and pop it into Training Peaks very confidently, or you can just use our sort of more basic version, which just sort of uh, monitors how you're actually progressing with your form, fitness, and fatigue over time as well. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a nice little... Uh, Nice little um, system, and we're quite excited about uh, putting out this new version out there and uh, and getting people's response and feedback from it. Because it, yeah, ultimately, what we're trying to achieve with this is, like you say, for swimmers out there who don't have access to good regular coaching, um, you know, maybe they're training remotely or they just can't make it to squad sessions, etc. It gives you it gives you the input and the structure that a really solid training program um, would give you. And you could argue, to be honest with you, you could argue that the system, because it is totally bespoke to you as opposed to attending a squad session, for example, where you might be training at the pace of the guy in front of you who might be two seconds per hundred quicker, it is a truly bespoke way of actually training. The downside of it, of course, is that it requires a little bit of motivation on your part, which uh, us triathletes seem to have in spades, of course. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I think there's still a lot of merit with training with it with a squad all my guys in the squad who come down to our most popular session which is a wednesday morning red mist endurance session it's a 5k hard endurance session for ironman athletes basically they all quote the fact that you know i went down last week couldn't make it to your session tried to do it on tuesday i just couldn't get the uh, motivation to do it by myself Mm -hmm. um you know so there's still merit with training with a group of course but uh if you're somebody who just hasn't got that access to that then this uh the swimsman guru is going to be a great way to hold your hand and, uh, and take you through all of that Fantastic. Now, just just finally, you um you mentioned before we came on here that you're training up to do one of these uh, crazy swim run events that we're sort of mm-hmm. starting to see popping up all over the world. Not not yeah. rapidly, but there's the Otillo one. If people haven't heard of that in Sweden, yeah. which is where they uh, swim from island to island and they run over the islands, and there's going to be one in Maine in America. Uh, they've had it's done in teams of two, um, but I think yeah. a lot of the challenge for people is uh, that who haven't done one before is they don't have a clue what to do in terms of equipment choices and stuff because you're swimming and running and typically the water might be a little bit cold and you're getting in and out and they're typically quite long events so yep. just any any quick tips you might have um, I know you're still training for it so you haven't actually done it but yes. any yeah. sort of guidance you can give to people well I guess I'm quite lucky I've um, 
I, the guy that I'm doing it with is from Sweden. He's done the Attilo, the official Attilo before himself. Matty Tordston is his name, and uh, we're doing it to raise a little bit of money for his daughter. Unfortunately, she's, uh, had, she's only eight years old and, and um, has has leukemia. Um, Matty has very good experience with this race, so he's actually feeding a lot of stuff to me and telling me, you know, you need to do this. These, this is your equipment choice, etc. But the basic premise of these events is they're typically done over 42 kilometers. The one which I'm registered for is on the Isles of Scilly, uh, the Scilly Isles, and the on the southwest uh, coast of the UK. It's going to be in June, I think. Uh, I think it is the June, it's June 18th. I should know the date. Uh, it's June 18th this year, and uh, so it's a 42k event. It comprises 10k's of open water swimming and 32k's of off-road running, and you literally swim between these islands, run over the top, swim to the next island, run over the top. And there are apparently eight swims. So that 10K swim is split down into eight different sections, the longest being 2Ks in the open water. Um, because it's in June and it's in the Atlantic Ocean, it's going to be mighty cold. <laughs> now, I, I, you know, I'm still carrying a little bit of my, uh, my timber from doing these marathon swimming events, like swimming around Manhattan Island and swimming across the English Channel. So I'm actually thinking that's going to be play at my advantage because you're allowed to wear wetsuits in these races. But you know, if you've got a skinny triathlete trying to swim in 13 or 14 degrees, even with a wetsuit on and you know, repetitively getting into the water, then I'm hoping that where I might lose out a little bit on the run because I'm carrying a bit of bit of heft, uh, I might make up on the swim. So me and Matty do this thing together. We wear the wetsuit and um, you know, I'm, I'm involved and with the design and. Um, delivery of the Hoob wetsuit. So we now have a Hoob Amphibia wetsuit, which is specifically designed for this race. So it's a wetsuit with a zip up the front, but it's designed to, it's almost like a shorty, if you like. So mm. it doesn't cover your full arms, doesn't cover the full legs. Uh, it comes down to your knees and to your elbows, basically, and with this zip up the front. Slightly thinner material, um, but the idea is that you do the swim section uh, in your trainers, so you've got to wear your trainers whilst you're swimming, um, and to sort of offset the drag so long as you can carry it with you, you can use a pool boy and you can use some paddles. But me and Matty have to be tethered together. So the idea is going to be that I'm hopefully going to drag him around the swim legs and, uh, and he's then going to push me around the, around the run because we'll come out of the water dripping wet. We've got a pool boy attached to the thigh with an elastic band. We've got our uh, runners on. We've got to run with our hand paddles on if we're going to use them. And, uh, and we're tethered together. And uh, you know, we're in this dripping wet uh, wetsuit, which you know, it's a lightweight wetsuit, but it's still going to be a lot harder than running just, uh, just purely fresh. Um, there's going to be very much a, a degree of navigation to it as well. So, you know, these events are becoming more and more popular, but it's not like doing a massive Ironman where it's all lined out, etc. There's going to be a degree of orienteering, I would imagine, to it and uh, just trying to find those waypoints, the best way up the mountain and, and those sort of things. So it's going to be really quite exciting. You know, I, um, I'm currently... Uh, running um, in a pair of Hoka's uh, big cushioned uh, running mm. shoes and they're fantastic for me because I've, I've had calf issues all my life and uh, they're allowing me to get back into my running but I dare say trying to swim in a pair of those is going to be <laughs> terrible because they're just going to soak up water so I'm trying to build up a bit of my strength and core stability using them and just get back into the running with the idea that I'll you know, you know, like many people do, work down to some lightweight uh, races for the actual day and uh, and get through it. But I've got to say I'm massively nervous about the whole thing because it's been, since I trained properly for running, it's been the best part of 15 years. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm certainly way out of shape in that respect. But it's, it's going to be going to be for good cause for Stina uh, to raise money for Matty's daughter. And, uh, and, you know, it's just an exciting new challenge, really. It's completely different to doing an Ironman or doing a truck 
doing a triathlon or even doing one of these open water marathon events that I've been doing for the last eight years. So yeah, it's really yeah, really quite a good thing to, to look to look to do. And you know, maybe we can give you an update once we've done it. Hopefully, if I survive the course and get round in one piece. Um, a couple of my uni mates are actually doing it. Uh, Andy Blow uh, and Elliot Sholifor, both of whom are top triathletes still to this yeah. day, and um, I'm sure they're going to be right up there in the top couple of people, uh, top couple of pairs to actually finish. So it'd be interesting to see how they go, and um, I'll be I'll be looking to try and get some tips from them because I believe they've also done the Attilo as well, the official one in Sweden. Great. So if people want to follow what you're up to, obviously they can go to swimsmooth.com, but maybe just run us through that blog and also if you've got a fundraising page or where people can follow you for um, for the efforts for you're doing for your teammate's daughter. Sure, yeah, no problem. I'll maybe give you a, a link if that's possible because it's going to be yeah. quite a link for the for uh, yeah. for the uh, for the Stina cause. That's that's her name. Um, but um, obviously, you can follow us at swimsmooth.com. The actual blog, which we put out every Friday lunchtime, that goes out Friday lunchtime in the UK GMT time, so evening over here in the Southern Hemisphere, is feelforthewater.com. And you know, each week we focus on either a training technique, uh, training tip, technique tip, or uh, some open water skills stuff. And that's a really well followed blog, and you know it's a free uh, it's a free sign up for that, so you can so follow us as we go. Uh, we're also on on Twitter, uh, both at, at @swimsmooth and at @swimsmoothpaul, which is my own personal uh, account on Twitter. And uh, I'll be posting some images and stuff regarding this uh, swim run event and the Isles of Scilly through that uh, through that Twitter handle as we go. Awesome, Paul. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. The listeners love hearing all this uh, detailed information and uh, making us all better swimmers. So thanks, as always, for your time. Okay, Jombo, we are back in sight. Fantastic. So I'd just like to reiterate you know, how I use what my watch. We, we were sort of running out of time to discuss things, but we sort of mentioned it. I think for you guys that you're listening to some of that stuff going bloody hell, I don't even don't know what stroke rate is. You're a bit more enlightened now, but you don't want to think about too much for when you go swimming. I think the absolute key thing that for, for watches in the pool for me is A, counting laps, but B, learning to actually take your time so you know what your speed is for 100, what your speed is for 200, what your speed is for 400, what you can do for a 1K, what you can do for a 2K. And then when you're going and doing a set of reps, you might be doing 10 200s and you're taking a certain amount of rest, you actually can see what's happening with your times because there's so many people out there who have absolutely no idea what time they, what speed they swim. And if they're at the pool, they might do a set of 200s, but they've got no idea if it's at their... 2k race pace their 400 race pace or whatever effort it is so um yeah use it to actually start educating yourself on how quick you're actually swimming per 100 meters when there's a couple of really important reasons for that because a um i have a better understanding of how to pace myself Mm -hmm. and b i actually have an understanding of faster swim because you get the person who gets a speedo on a bike and they go i ride at 36 k's an hour yeah it's like well maybe you did for five seconds (laughs) you know like you know like but could you ride 180k at that? You know, yeah. and it's you know, so it kind of the wiser information we can get back, the wiser decisions we can make as athletes. And you can have some variation in your speed. So instead of just getting in the pool and swimming at two minutes per hundred every single hundred, you can go, okay, let's see if I can bang out five times 100, holding one minute 40, and take 45 seconds rest. You know, have bigger rests, and, and really try to develop a top end. And also try to develop that that lower end so you actually learn how to swim slow and be a bit more efficient. So it's all about same in all, all three disciplines. You know, you know, you need to have that top end, you need to have your aerobic end, and you need to do plenty of race pace training. So it uh, gives you that variability and helps make it more interesting. What, what are you using right now? Uh, I've still got the nine 
10. I'd like to have the 920 if anybody wants to offer me okay. a little uh, oh, nice. gift bonus or anything nice. like that. Bonus. <laughs> we get a bonus from the listeners. Nice. Yeah. So, but that still does. Why, why, why fun- do you want 920? Uh, then it just, you can, there's a bit more functionality in terms of. They're you, looking pretty cool nowadays, too. Aren't they're they? a bit smaller. Yep. And you, then you can set up a few more things in terms of in the pool, um, the beeping and, and keeping you on pace and stuff. Nice. Do you want to do my first try? No. Okay. I, do, I mean, I do, but I'm conscious that we've got seven minutes. Seven springs. We'll, we'll get to you. Mm. We'll get to you eventually. Okay. Uh, Jombo. Patrons. Patrons. Eric. Icy Bernie. By Icy. So I went on to Athlinks on his Athlinks page and he had a picture of, uh, for whatever reason, his profile picture was a picture of the Pop School logo. Hmm. I'm calling it icy. Oh, I like that. that. That works. Well, I've got Robert Evans. And when you think of Evans, who do you think of? Evans. Cycling. <laughs> oh, Cadell Evans. Yeah. yeah. So I went with Cadell Evans and I went and did a research on his nickname. Yeah. And Cadell Evans' nickname was Cuddles. Right. So Cuddles, Robert, Robert Cuddles Evans. Very good. Uh, Blasting of the Past, Nicholas Hitch Pocock. Nice. And Joel Bell. Joel Bell, now he's got a little coaching business on the side called Sisu Multisport. Yep. And uh, Sisu sounds a bit sort of karate-ish. Mm. And then I thought, yeah. Sensei. Oh, Sensei. So he's a karate master. Oh, Sensei. Joel Sensei Bell. If you want to be a patron of the show, go to www.iamtalk.me. It's all pretty clear on the page. There's different levels of patrons that you can become. And remember, guys, we're going to be doing the draw in... Two Less uh, two and a half weeks time, so that's your cutoff time to get in the draw for Kona for 2016. What an awesome thing to like! I'm so excited about it. I'll be wicked. Yeah, man, because what a cool thing to win. Yeah, especially for those who may, you know, hopefully, well, you know, whoever wins will win. But it'd be cool if we got someone who'd never been there before. Mm. Like, what a cool experience! So, and there'll be lots going on because I've got the camp going on this year, and so we'll have uh, we have the. Wetsuit Aquathon, um, we have a bunch of other things going on as well. Oh, really? And, uh, nice, yeah. I like that. You, you started big there and <laughs> we've got a bunch of things with the wetsuit well, and you, other things. Maybe have to come and sit on a, sit on a podcast. Yep. We'll are we going to do a live podcast, are we? Well, we have lots of people there for the camp. So I think I've got about 16, 17 people on the camp. Mm. So we have to do some grandstanding. Yeah, grandstanding. Mm. Okay, Jonbo, what's your boss? Oh, wait a second, I'm Talkers Proudly brought to you by... Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Electric buffer. And our patrons. And, uh, and it's still recording, Bevan, which is fantastic, our, pro- our program. We're using the old version of GarageBand, and uh, mm. I was a little bit concerned, but John's com- computer's delivering. It is. Okay, John, but what's your boss? Just about to go out for another bike ride. We're going on the bunch ride. Looking forward to it again every week. The How sun's shining. 70. It's only 60. It's, not, 60 it's not far now. by the time. Yeah, not far. But I wonder, because one day you came back and you were very fast, and I was like... Yeah, no, it's not that far now. It's, yeah, you have uh, you have a the climb. First climb is about five minutes long, five to six minutes long. And then you have a couple of little punchy ones, and maybe two or three. And then you got to climb about thirteen minutes, fourteen minutes at is the that end. Dies. Yeah, so it's, um, so it's all good times. People will keep asking me about my. Well, maybe my better to make it into an old school where you go. You should suggest this today, John. Mm. Let's do the same ride, but go up Coopers or a long summit down in Sumner. Yeah, but how are you going to get back? Well, you just get back how we used to when you came over Evans. You can't get over Evans. No, but if you go along Summit, you go all the way along Summit now. Oh, that's crap along there. It's, it's only crap for like 300 metres. Oh, it's terrible. Um, anyway. Oh, <laughs> weak. People keep asking me about the low-carb, high-fat stuff. I did a five-hour bike ride on Sunday with uh, no breakfast and didn't eat anything the whole way through the ride, just water. I didn't, never thought I'd be able to do that. I was quite impressed. Did you do it, did you? 
did it. Well, well yeah. done. proud of you. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Good that, was, that was my highlight of my, my weekend. Wow. <laughs> that, and the other thing that I did was uh, that was not a highlight. My program had on it, I needed to do 35 minutes of FTP work on Saturday. Did you read the article that Ian put on Facebook? Yes, I did. That was pretty good. Good. Um, if anybody wants to read that, it's about low carb, high fat, and the AIS guys and stuff um, doing some stuff there. So check out my Facebook page. But so I had this 35 minutes of FTP, and so that's that's hard work. You know, one hour FTP is your maximum effort. And I was doing it on the trainer, and I was using Trainer Road, and I had a little program set up that was actually only 30 minutes of FTP. But and was, you went to be doing 35. Yes. Why, why are you going to do 30? Because I had this session already pre-programmed and, and rather easy. than recreate saying, I thought, oh, 30, 30 is good enough. And so I had, I had my cycling on in front of me. I think it was, uh, it uh, wasn't Paranese. It was one of the other sort of early season tours. And I thought, right, done my warm up, all ready to go. And I'm going to press start. 30 minutes is a long time. So I don't really want to be watching the countdown from 30 minutes. So when you're two minutes in, you go, I've got 28 minutes to go. So yeah. I thought, I'm just going to cover that up. And uh, I'm just going to crack on with it, and I'll, I'll have a look after, you know, uh, you know, in ten minutes' time, and sort of then I'll start to count down from there. And some cracking into it in five minutes, and I'm watching the watching the the YouTube clip, and I'm kind of varying my cadence based on whether they were going up and down hills and stuff. And I thought, oh, how long? I wonder how long I've been going. And I took <laughs> I took the towel off the 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 the, the um off my phone. And when I put the towel on, I must have pressed pause. So, so, so I think it was Karma saying, you had 35 minutes, you were trying to only do 30, yep. and I think I'd probably done seven minutes or so, and then I had to press restart, but got through it. So that was my training highlights of the weekend, five-hour ride and uh, FTP work. Did you have a goss? Did you do anything else on the weekend? I was. We picked up takeaways. So my, my low-carb, high-fat is is pretty much 80-20. I'm not going crazy on it or anything like that. Saturday night, we sort of decided, I'll get takeaways. Wait, what takeaways do you get? But Indian, so oh, it's uh, in the end, it's only about a two kilometer drive to go and pick it up. And I'm driving down Tennyson Street, you know, just around the corner from you. And there's a bit of, bit of a crappy driver in front of me. And so I thought, I'm just going to hold off a little bit here. And as we turned into the street, then the sunstrike really kicked oh, in. Like I was major, major sunstrike. And I was almost considering pulling over for a couple of minutes. It was that bad. And this guy was already a bit all over the road. And I'm thinking, oh, are you turning right or are you not turning right? And he veered into the middle of the road and just completely drove over a traffic island with oh, those really? pedestrian was he things. Drunk or something? I don't know, but they had their big metal bars and he just crunched the front of his car. He's probably only going to 35, 40k an hour. And I was just luckily I was far enough back thinking, Whoa! Oh. And then he reversed up and he took off again <laughs> and he cleaned it out again halfway. <laughs> so I was like, oh dear. Anyway, Bevan, what's been happening in your world? We've got two minutes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, oh, London? Yeah, I went London. to the Science Museum. Mm-hmm. Have you been there? Oh, that a is time very ago. cool. Mm-hmm. One of the highlights of the trip, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Just by Hyde Park. Uh, um, that and soccer? I went to the football. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who won? Watford. Yeah, they, they were very entertaining. Bevan said to me before the show last week, oh, that doesn't sound like much of a game. I said, Watford are going to get caned. Yeah, no, they, they did. And to be honest, in the first half, you're thinking... There's an obvious difference in levels here, mm. and then the second half, off it just played their socks off. And mm. but it was a really good game because in the last pit, you know, the, the Gunners almost could have drawn the game. So that was it was highly entertaining, John. It's highly Great entertaining. Uh, the only thing is tiredness. What do you mean tiredness? When you come back from the UK, you know, keep pumping those sleeping pills. Go out for a, go out for a five hour bike ride. I'm going to not eat anything. I'm going to do that on Friday. So let's see how I go. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I haven't done any of your stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, and other than that, Jumbo 
Just back to life. Been in Wellington. We've started our business in Wellington. Nice. So our Wellington people were up there. I've been up there this week, so it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And um, that's about it, Jumbo. Very good. Uh, let's wrap it up. How's your swimming going? I'm, I'm not going to swim at all. Are you just going to go go, go for it? And and I'll, I'll probably get four training sessions in. Mm-hmm. So I figure I'll do two rides, two, two runs. Good. No, I'll probably have to run a little bit over the next couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll need to run because of my knee. So... Yeah, so yeah, Skype's coming on. It is. Are you just checking if he's there? It wasn't. It wasn't happening before. I was a bit worried. Uh, Anyhow, Iron Rust. I mean, don't train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. kaha.